Are monsters made, born, or something in between? Serial murderers have become the marquee stars for our failed planet's grim theater of the macabre because they help answer this chilling question. Dozens of podcasts, TV series, and films streaming right now have lured in millions of fans simply by retracing the steps and seemingly inexplicable choices of serial killers. The spectacle of terror they stir up outshines even the most scandalous headlines of kinky sex, violent assault, or heartbreaking neglect, snaring not just our attention, but the most existential questions lurking deep in our brain pans. There's nothing more human or timeless than trying to comprehend the behaviors of ostensible monsters leading generations of our kind to ask, why? Why do they do what they do? But before understanding why, we must identify the what. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, it's essential to first establish what we mean by, quote, serial killer. Though limited in its scope, federal law defines serial killing as a series of three or more killings with common characteristics, creating the reasonable assumption that the same actor or actors committed the crimes. This, dear listeners, is very different from mass murderers who load up an assault rifle and kill four or more people in a single event. But beyond this very basic framework and decades of work by criminologists and mental health experts, there's no real, widely accepted template which accurately encompasses the behaviors of all serial killers. Because being a serial killer is not a clinical diagnosis, and though there may be similarities across serial killing events, each horrifying example is frighteningly unique serial killers. Despite what some of the aforementioned podcast and TV shows insist, are not all dysfunctional loners, nor are they all white males motivated by sex or evil geniuses or fame-seeking maniacs hell-bent on getting caught. Their methodologies can be as diverse as their causality and motivations even harder to track and codify. As it turns out, serial murderers, like all humans, are the product of their genes, upbringing, socioeconomic luck, and choices made throughout their lives. Excavating their backstories and terrible crimes thus tends to erase the question of why or what and replace it with something far more unnerving. Could I ever do what they've done? This is how serial killers have become the proverbial apex predators of our collective nightmares. It's not their size or raw power. Up close, we learn many of these fellas are flimsy little limp dicks, unable to survive in prison for very long, intentionally targeting only the most vulnerable amongst us. What makes them captivating is their relentless willingness to feed a demented hunger we all fear could be hiding somewhere deep inside of us or deep inside the neighbor next door we think we know 
Most people are acutely aware that the way we're all living, our cruelty towards each other and the planet, our binary way of dividing things into good or evil, our obsession with hoarding money and things instead of sharing and caring in meaningful ways, produces monsters, as well as places where monsters can hide easily. By looking more closely at the darkness around serial killers, instead of averting our eyes, we can actually confront some uncomfortable questions about ourselves and better understand why exactly taking compassionate care of the lowest in our communities matters so much. But we have to be brave enough to look into that darkness. So let's maybe do that together. Now, the following podcast contains adult themes, gritty details from true crimes, and naughty language. Listener discretion is advised. There's no time now. I began five years ago in secret, working all night, every night, right into the dawn. A thousand experiments, a thousand failures, and then, at last, the great, wonderful day. you spooky nerds welcome back to human fuckery the only podcast dribbling grains of weird history true crime and human psychology into a decorative glass bottle to create the audio equivalent of 1990s sand art look i'm no we're just we're just trying to get a colorful intro (laughs) i am just one of your humble hosts long-suffering professional researcher and manic pixie dream squirrel, Kimberly, broadcasting to you from Satan's sweaty inflamed taint, New Orleans, Louisiana. Joining me today, as always, for the very special season two finale episode is my beloved co-host, clinical psychology smarty pants and menacing voiceover expert, Dr. Edward Simon. Menacing voice over. Edward. Kimberly. It's the season finale. I know. We. I just got a Facebook memory the other day reminding me that we just released our second episode a year ago. Yeah, no. From the day we're recording this. Yeah, fuck my life. Um, We've been working on this episode for two months. Oh, I am aware. We have some very special guest judges. Yeah, I am a little starstruck, honestly. Since this is an extra special and extra long episode, I want to get into introducing the judges and sharing the stories ASAP, but... It bears mentioning that our last episode has become a surprise runaway hit. The true tale of WWE's exploiting homophobia to create one of the greatest wrestling characters ever, Goldust, racked up literally thousands of downloads since we shared it to the main feed during Pride season and had people DMing and texting us directly for two straight weeks. I told you to never underestimate the appeal of professional wrestling. You did, and I believed you, but I didn't realize how deeply Goldust had penetrated into the psyche of millennial Mm. and Gen X men of all sexual persuasions and had no idea how many people would write in gushing about the way either Goldie shaped their childhood or how passionately they despise Vince McMahon as adults. Uh, You had a very visceral 
uh, interaction with one very excited gentleman, your ex-husband, Ray Lopez. How was his response to learning of the news that oh. Goldust was the subject of our secret story I believe time? I told you about this. Uh, the second I told him what the script was, he started rubbing his nipples, which at that point I did not understand because I hadn't <laughs> viewed enough of the footage and the research to know that he was in. But like he immediately began to impersonate. He started like like lisping That's and hissing incredible. and rubbing his nipples and then he did like this drop knee uppercut finishing move which and I later learned was a thing that he did anyway yeah. it was it was it was fantastic <laughs> I'm gonna mention another thing that Ray did in a, a second but like Ray wasn't the only one who had like people lost their goddamn minds over this Julian in Colorado wrote to say quote fuck Vince McMahon right in his blown out, rapey, narcissistic, capitalist hamstrings, which well said, Julian. Um, Jason in New York wrote to beg everyone who is a gold dust stand to familiarize themselves with the injustices foisted upon his predecessor, Adrian Adonis. Definitely. Um, Ray sent us an archival image reminding everyone that the WWE apparently used to think it was funny to claim fighters had AIDS as a way of demeaning them. There is a photo of a guy saying, Rowdy Rowdy Piper has has AIDS. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that 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 was a okay. And Joe on the East Coast messaged and this is a direct quote, Jesus Christ, it took this episode for me to realize Goldust was gay. As a kid, I just thought they didn't like his gold paint but couldn't understand why. I need some time alone to digest all of this. <laughs> I immediately got a DM from uh, a friend from college who worked for ESPN offering to try to put me in touch with Dustin Runnels. Uh, I, I will let you guys know if that pans out. I, please, I'm begging. <laughs> I would do anything. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Joe, um, yeah, that's that's relatable. Yeah. So I feel you. Uh, a reminder to listeners that the Gold Dust story began as a secret story time. These are episodes created specifically for paying subscribers over on our Patreon. So if you liked it as much as these folks did, hop over to the Patreon linked in our show notes and subscribe. Now that we're going on hiatus, it's the one place you can keep getting new content from the Human Fuckery team. Plus, there's literally dozens of previously released Secret Storytime episodes you can unlock with like a few bucks. I think we're on like 44 or something at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's hours so and hours There is stuff. a lot of shit to digest yeah, and if it's you like love our stories. Yeah, like seven if you want to be able to hear hours of stuff. Edward, let's do the thing where we tell new listeners what the fuck is going on. Let's do it. If you're brand new to Human Fuckery, here's how the competition works. Kimberly and I draw a topic out of a dusty, mercury-tainted top hat purchased from a haunted shop on Royal Street. Or, in the case of today's episode, we let some paying subscribers pick. We each get some weeks to dig into the archives and find the best story from history's blown-out colon that demonstrates the assigned themes. That's right. We get time in the studio to record and score our individual submissions. Then we meet here in Human Fuckery's Fuckery Dungeon to present our stories to some reluctant judges and have one of us declared the winner. In the process, listeners, we hope, learn some stuff that helps them better face human fuckery in our daily lives. It should be noted that our intern slash producer slash CEO, Gary the Ghoul, kidnaps the show's judges in the dead of night and forces them under threat of creative death to participate. As such, judges' rulings are suspect at best and always coerced. 
since guest judges were chosen this time based on their experience telling stories related to our assigned theme, now's a good time to mention the subject of today's podcast is... Forgotten Serial Killers. Absolutely miserable subject to spend months reading and writing about, guys. Thank you so much for the nightmares. No, no doubt. Really needed this. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Made me a better person. Ugh. But because we're talking serial killers this month, Gary has kidnapped two cast members from the best TV show about multiple murders ever fucking made. David Fincher's Mind Hunter of Netflix fame. Waiting in our dungeon holding cell right now is Holt McCallany, absolute legend of films and shows about men on the edge of madness or mayhem. In addition to playing the square-jawed, straight-laced FBI agent Bill Tench on Mindhunter, Holt has appeared in Fight Club, Three Kings, Men of Honor, CSI Miami, Criminal Minds, Law and Order, Blue Bloods, Jack Reacher, Wrath of Man, and the upcoming Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, amongst so many others. He has been cast as cops, FBI agents, military men, and criminals more times than Kimberly's trolled Manosphere influencers on the internet, which is, is, is breathtakingly saying something. I'm sorry. Holt is joined by longtime friend of the pod, two-time Tony Award winner Michael Cerveris. In addition to his landmark performances on Broadway as tortured killers like John Wilkes Booth in Assassins and Sweeney in Sweeney Todd, Michael's beautiful bald pate has been seen on screen as the observer on the hit sci-fi series Fringe, Professor Pig on Gotham, slapstick supervillain Ramses IV on The Tick, the voice of the demon therapist on Evil, a very nice butler on HBO's costume drama Gilded Age, and that doctor who died in Ant-Man and the Wasp, amongst many others. On Mindhunter, he was featured as fancy FBI bigwig Ted Gunn, where he wore a fantastic pair of tartan golf pants. <laughs> like Holt, he's been cast as a killer, madman, or tortured criminal more times than Gary the Ghoul's Hump the Studio Skeleton, which is also saying something. Mm. Kimberly, how are the guests being coerced today? Uh, honestly, given the heat wave that's going on, just leaving in the backyard for five minutes would have been plenty. But Gary is a consummate professional who takes his craft seriously. As such, our esteemed guests have been aggressively seasoned with crawfish boil spices and thrown into a hot tub with sausage, potatoes, and corn cobs. They've been placed in direct Louisiana sunlight, and we've hired a New Orleans brass band to play the talking head psycho killer at them over and over for the last nine hours. They're as flavorful as they are angry, and I'm looking forward to getting their feedback on today's submissions. It's been a very long 13 months of churning out episodes, it has. but I am going to miss cleaning up Gary's escapades during hiatus. That creepy little fuck is something special. You're not wrong. 
Oh, legally, we do need to mention for obvious reasons that today's episode was previously recorded because these are busy guys with real jobs. And today's conversation with the guests predates the strike going on in Hollywood. We tend thousand percent support every writer, actor, extra and wage slave in Hollywood being fairly compensated for making things CEOs categorically cannot and still can't believe Netflix would do something as abusive as cancel Mindhunter midway through its run when it was the best goddamn show on the entire network. So, Edward, you uh, you you have a story to tell us. I do. Uh, This story is so horrible that I know it already because we had to discuss prior to recording how many details we could actually give during the show without losing our entire audience. I'm sorry. It's just the assignment was to find a serial killer who most people don't know about and spotlight them. I did that. I did it. You did do that. And you did it (sighs) so well that I may never fully recover. It's It's a compliment. So let's get to the story with the added warning that, hey, listeners, please don't ignore the content warning on this one. It's really not appropriate for kids to hear and may be triggering for victims of sexual violence. Take it away, Dr. Simon. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, all you spooky nerds. And also normal people with, I don't know, social skills, an air fryer, whatever it is that makes normal people normal. We accept all kinds here. And we also accept all kinds over on our Patreon. Mm, Nice segue. We get it. Everyone's broke. Everyone's got a Patreon and no one wants to fill out yet another online payment form. But if you're listening to this show, then you'll actually love our Patreon. It's got all the best parts of the podcast. Weird stories from history's colon, underscoring, and silly sound effects, dark psychology. And less of the other leftover stuff. Us, specifically. Less of us yammering. Every month, subscribers get either one or two, you get to pick, slickly produced, guest-free, and banter-free episodes of Secret Storytime, our series covering wild stories and case studies ripped from the annals of human history. Subscribers also get long-form written stories, in case you're someone who still likes to read, early and ad-free access to the usual monthly human fuckery competition show, and the ability to pick what we'll write about or do new episodes on next you can literally send us a link being like tell this story and we'll go okay it's the best way to make sure we can keep doing this show and every subscription helps us keep gary the ghoul housed it's hard to find a landlord who'll accept a demonic hell spawn with a torture fetish in this market You can help us keep Gary housed and this show alive by heading over to www.patreon.com backslash human fuckery. Just pick a tier, enjoy the dozens of already released episodes of Secret Storytime, and wait till you see what we drop next month because, yeah, it's some entertaining fuckery. Picking a story for this episode was a tall order. So many of the most gripping tales of serial murder, an absolutely terrible and deplorable phenomenon, mind you, well, they've already been detailed and discussed ad nauseum. When someone even uses the phrase serial killer, creepy American media flashbacks of Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, and BTK almost instantly flash before our eyes. Netflix, HBO, and dozens of other podcasts have gangbanged humanity's worst stories into prolapse. 
Now, while serial murder is no way uniquely American, we do seem to have the market cornered. Yield Land of the Free has produced nearly 68% of the serial killers the world has ever known. A whopping 19 times more than the second place country on this list. So it made sense to dig into the annals of international history to find a worthy contender to challenge Kimberly this month. And sitting within many censored and blacked out pages from the former USSR, I did find one brutal, prolific, and underreported case worthy of featuring. But I must forewarn listeners before presenting his story. This is an account of a deeply troubled individual and a moderately detailed reporting of the inhuman crimes he committed. Now, per our show's norm, I am not going to sensationalize the most triggering specifics for sport, but I'm also going to do my best to tell this story as it truly happened. For anyone acutely struggling with PTSD from sexual assault or child molestation, respectfully, this may be one you want to skip. If you usually listen to our show with kids or younger family members around, please don't do that this time for fuck's sake. Now, if you choose to go forward and listen, know that I am right here with you and just as horrified by this sick fuck as you are. An old Russian proverb states that everyone is young in the winter cold. The saying partially explains why, during the week before Christmas 1978, the townsfolk of Shakti, Russia, were traveling their frigid streets with an extra bit of enthusiasm to their step. Not even the icy conditions could force them inside. Such was their energy of the joyful coming holiday. The inclement weather during that winter, however, well, it was more than just a bit chilly. You see, Soviet Russia's cold is notorious for a reason. And so it was unusual to find an actual young person traversing the slushy roads alone. She stood out like something from a Russian fairy tale. Wearing a red coat with a black furry collar, a rabbit hat and felt boots, Yelana pushed through the rainy snow on her arduous journey home. Having just celebrated her ninth birthday over a month prior, a girl her age should have been indoors already. She'd been dismissed from school hours ago. But on that evening, Yelana had decided to accept an impromptu invitation to a friend's house. The circumstances were extenuating. Like most children in her town, Christmas was Yelana's favorite time of year. But Russian Christmas is tricky. You see, according to their Orthodox calendar, Christmas Day formally falls on January 7th. However, in 1935, murderous cock goblin Joseph Stalin declared Santa Claus would deliver gifts on New Year's Day, creating a confusing mashup of adult and children's festivities come January 1st. Kids wrote and mailed letters to Grandfather Frost. Parents, well, they scribbled down their own wishes for the new year on little slips of paper and then burned them 
funneling the ashes into bottles of champagne or vodka, essentially creating a magic elixir that all participating in the ritual must drink from. Now, this nasty-ass magic potion and adjacent party was responsible for Yolanda's detour that evening as her schoolmate offered her an opportunity to drink and make wishes with her family's champagne sludge. The nine-year-old spent the evening eagerly drinking from the bottle, wishing to whatever spirit governed the ashes that her daddy wouldn't have to work so hard this holiday season. It wasn't until freezing rain began smacking the windows that she realized the hour had grown late. Yolanda hurried home in the darkness, worried that by now her mother would be cross. Her little feet shuffled ahead frantically, crunching and squishing through the now heavily falling snow. As she trudged, however, it became clear to her that a second pair of feet were falling into step with hers. Yolanda turned and saw the silhouette of an older man move toward her. The figure spoke in a beguiling and childlike voice. Little girl, do you want some candy? I have bubble gum. Yolanda quickened her pace, hoping the stranger would fall back and bother someone else. But then he stepped into her path. She could see his thick glasses, long dark coat, and broken smile. But despite his abruptness, there was a desperate kindness in his face. The strange man reminded Yolanda of her grandfather. Again, he repeated his question. Would you like some bubble gum? This time, she took a piece. The pair walked side by side for some time. He asked her questions about her family, friends, and hobbies. His warmth was reassuring, and the interest he took in her, well, it was disarming. But Yolanda was growing uncomfortable, but for reasons having little to do with her new friend. Her tiny bladder was swelling with alcohol, and she was still a long way from home. When the man noted her discomfort, Yolanda sheepishly conveyed her dilemma. She had to go, bad, but didn't want to strip down in freezing rain. The stranger presented a solution. I live just a couple of minutes from here. You can use the toilet there. Yolanda hesitated. The man was peculiar and his odor even more so, like a combination of sweat and feces. And she noticed he was perspiring in the plummeting cold. Nevertheless, she really needed to go and reluctantly followed the stranger down a narrow path off the main road. Eventually, they approached a dilapidated shack. It was the last place anyone would want to live, as if someone had recreated a Thomas Kincaid painting and then set the entire thing on fire. The area was desolate, with the battered shelter hidden by a threatening hover of trees and bushes. The stranger fumbled with the lock, finally opening the door and then switching on the light. Yolanda felt momentarily relieved, but unfortunately, she would never make it to the bathroom. Now, dear listeners, for your own well-being, or let's just say mine, we won't be following Yolanda into that room. What happens to her is something that no one should have to experience or relive in story form. Her life, of course, amounted to much more than its tragic ending. But that said, 
we still need to know the relevant details as recorded by police investigators. As the door locked behind them, the unassuming older man metamorphosized into a fevered monster. He threw Yolana to the floor, then pushed himself onto her. Clothes were removed. An effort was made to sexually assault the child, but, well, something went wrong. The man's body betrayed him. He was unable to achieve arousal, ultimately preventing him from completing his heinous objective. But through his violent aggression, Yolana's private area was ruptured and she began to bleed. Now, I share this wretched detail only because it served as a catalyst in the life of the perpetrator. The sensation he experienced in response to Yolana's blood was like nothing he'd ever known. The lust became overwhelming, and that's when he remembered he had a small knife in his pocket. Just a few more drops of blood. That's all he wanted. Rape was familiar to him, but he was no killer. However, as Yolana screamed at the flick of his blade, the monster lost control. He stabbed her repeatedly, piercing vital organs. It couldn't have lasted more than a minute or two, but once bathed in blood, the wretch involuntarily ejaculated. Poor Yolana did not survive the encounter, and the terrible thing that awakened that night, roused from slumber by the sight of her blood, would alter many lives in horrific ways over the years to come. Yolana was found by police on December 24th, 1978. She'd been dumped in the Grushevka River, bundled in a sack. Her school bag was found on the bank nearby. Rostov-on-Don was a city known for its crime, but the murder of a child was an unfamiliar headline. An intense investigation followed, and eventually police captured a man named Alexander Kravchenko. Now, the police were lauded for their prompt apprehending of the criminal, and Kravchenko was expeditiously convicted of murder and then executed by gunshot. But to everyone's horror, the murders continued. The next victim was found on September 4th, 1981. 17-year-old Larissa Kachenko disappeared while waiting for a bus to school. She was eventually found in a forest, beaten and asphyxiated to death, covered in leaves and newspaper. Amidst a violent struggle, mud had been forced into her mouth and one nipple bitten off. Nine months later, a 13-year-old was found naked behind bushes after being abducted while returning from a shopping trip in the village of Donskoy. 22 stab wounds and mutilated eye sockets punctuated her case file. In the next three months, the monster would kill five more times with victims of both sexes between the ages of 9 and 18. On December 10th, 1982, the killer escalated after a 10-year-old girl was abducted while returning home by bus from her piano lessons. A letter arrived at police headquarters during the search for her, addressed to, quote, parents of the missing child. The message was brief. Greetings, parents. Don't get upset. She is not the first and not the last. Before New Year, we need 10 more. 
She was found in a cornfield on the outskirts of town, stabbed more than 50 times, then gutted like livestock. Eyewitnesses claim to have seen the perpetrator lure the young girl from the bus, leading her away by hand. But their statements did little. Police response was disorganized and anemic at best. By January 1983, at least four killings were linked to the same mysterious individual. With public outcry mounting, higher-ups in Moscow finally dispatched Major Mikhail Fedosov to spearhead an investigation now called Operation Forest Path. Under Fedosov's leadership, 10 investigators were assembled in Rostov, assigned to resolve the open cases. In June 1983, the body of a 15-year-old Armenian girl was discovered near a railway platform near Shakti, making clear the killer was still out there and lusting for blood. By September, five more victims had fallen. The mountain of corpses with precision wounds led police to theorize the killings were part of an organ harvesting operation or, of course, a satanic cult. Law enforcement, brainwashed by Soviet propaganda, focused their attention on dissidents, the mentally disabled, and homosexuals as their primary suspects. Police interrogation tactics of the time were notoriously brutal, and by September 1983, severally mentally disabled youths had confessed to the murders. Additionally, three homosexuals and one convicted sex offender committed suicide as a result of the torturous interactions with investigators. But no matter how many confessions emerged, the bodies continued to stack up. On October 30th, 1983, the disemboweled corpse of Vera Shevkun, a 19-year-old prostitute, was discovered. Two months later, a 14-year-old schoolboy was lured off a train and murdered near a rural railway station. His body was subjected to emasculation, and then he endured over 70 stab wounds to his neck and upper torso before being gutted. March 24th saw the killer entice a 10-year-old boy from a stamp kiosk. As he walked with the boy, the perpetrator was noticed by multiple witnesses who provided investigators with the first comprehensive description of his appearance. When the child's remains were discovered three days later, law enforcement finally caught a break and uncovered a footprint left by the assailant. Semen and saliva samples from the victim's clothing were also taken. By October 1984, 23 murders were now linked into one case, and investigative manpower doubled. But again, the murders continued. Desperate, police finally reached out to psychiatrist Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky. It marked the first time in Soviet history that a mental health professional was consulted in relation to serial murder. After analyzing the case files, Bukhanovsky produced a 65-page psychological profile of the man that police were after. He described the perpetrator as a recluse between 45 and 50 who had undergone a painful and solitary upbringing. The killer lacked the ability to engage in flirtation or romantic pursuits with women. He was probably highly educated, married, and likely a parent. He exhibited sadistic tendencies and struggled with impotence, finding his only sexual gratification in the suffering of his victims. 
The murders themselves mirrored the sexual acts he could not perform with his knife serving as a substitute for, and remember, this is the doctor talking, his penis. Police also finally began to note that the murders usually occurred on weekdays near major transportation hubs throughout Rostov Oblast. Bukhanovsky theorized that the killer's occupation necessitated frequent travel, deducing from the days of the week the murders took place that the killer likely adhered to a work schedule tied to production. Now, it was assumed by this point that the monster followed news reports closely. Unfortunately, because of government efforts to paint Soviet Russia as a safe utopia, Local newspapers were largely silent about the years-long stretch of disembowelments. In some cases, the discovery of a body earned barely a few inches at the bottom of a page. Though more than 30 people had now been killed by the mid-1980s, the media produced no warnings to young women or parents, and eyewitness descriptions of the killer were never shared. And as a result, over the next five years, at least 15 more deaths were linked to the elusive specter. Thankfully, by 1990, enough information had been made public to warrant intense political and social pressure in the USSR. The grim spotlight fueled a now massive, though embarrassingly belated, police manhunt. As authorities compiled locations where victims had been discovered, railway stations on one rail route throughout the Rostov Oblast paralleled their findings. Police enacted a plan to saturate larger regional stations with a noticeable uniformed police presence, deploying 360 men at train stations across Rostov Oblast, placing undercover officers at the three smaller stations where the killer had struck most frequently. They were going to smoke him out, and the gambit paid off. On November 6, 1990, an undercover officer named Igor Rybakov observed a suspicious man arriving at one of the three smaller stations. He then began immediately washing his hands and face in a nearby well. He was covered in grass and soil stains, but he also had a red smear on one cheek and a significant wound on one of his fingers. Now, the railway station was notably surrounded by woodland areas, and it was often visited by wild mushroom foragers at that time of year. But this suspicious man was wearing formal attire and wasn't carrying anything suitable for foraging. Rybakov stopped the bloodied suspect and checked his papers, but ultimately had no reason to arrest him. That evening, however, Officer Rybakov filed a routine report of the day's events, scribbling down the name Andre Chikatilo. The next week, another body was found, and the police summoned the records of all men stopped and interviewed during the preceding week. Chikatilo's name finally surfaced in a meaningful way, and strangely enough, it, it was recognized by several officers working the case. Apparently, Andre had been questioned in 1984 and included in a 1987 suspect list circulated across the Soviet Union. 
Intrigued by this, police dug into his backstory and discovered a frightening past. Chikatilo had been forced out of multiple teaching jobs in the 1970s due to child molestation. He'd even been a suspect in the Yolana Zakatnova killing in 1978. A list of items found in Chikatilo's suitcase when he was first detained years ago included a knife, lengths of rope, and a small jar of Vaseline. What the fuck? Plus, one of Yolana's toys, later found in his work locker. He'd been released from custody because his blood type did not match what was discovered via the semen found at the crime scene. <sighs> Regardless, by cross-referencing Chikatilo's current and past employers, investigators established his presence in various towns and cities where several victims had been murdered. And on November 14th, police placed this sick fuck under 24-hour surveillance. They observed him approach solitary young women or children on trains and buses, engaging them in unwelcome conversation. If the individual ended the exchange, Chikatilo would wait a few minutes, then seek out another person to begin speaking with. Now, after six days talking and stalking, Chikatilo was seen leaving his residence carrying a large jar of beer. Police watched as he attempted to lure a young boy from the train station before managing to slip away. The child told investigators the man had, quote, offered me some beer and suggested I go with him to his place to watch some videos. Can only imagine what those fucking videos were. Everyone had seen enough. At precisely 3.40 p.m. on November 20th, three undercover police officers emerged from an unmarked vehicle and approached Chikatilo outside a cafe. What is your name? They asked. Chikatilo, he responded. No other words were spoken, and Chikatilo's arms were placed behind his back and affixed with handcuffs. He offered zero resistance, and he asked no questions as to why he was even being arrested. For the next 40 minutes back to police headquarters, Andre Chikatilo said nothing. A search of his bag yielded a length of rope and a nine-inch blade. Officers pressed for a confession, but still... He said nothing. The silence drove police nearly to exhaustion. But after a couple of days, they finally ground him down. In a statement made on November 22nd, Chikatilo spoke of his weakness for perverted sexual displays in films. He said he sometimes could not control his actions, adding, I often used to spend time at railway stations, in trains, on suburban trains and in buses. There are a lot of different tramps there, both young and old. They ask, demand, and take. They are drunk from the morning onwards. I used to see scenes from the sex lives of these tramps at the railway stations and on the trains. And I used to recall my humiliation that I had never been able to realize myself as a complete male. The question arose of whether these degenerate elements had the right to exist. It is not difficult to become acquainted with these people. They don't try to hold themselves back. They crawl into your very soul, demanding money, food, and vodka, and offering themselves for sex. Though indicating guilt, 
Chikatilo remained vague in his statements, refusing to provide specifics, now steeped in his shame and humiliation. By its character, my case is an exceptional one. I am ready to give evidence of the crimes that I committed, but please do not torment me with the details, because my psyche could not cope with this. Everything which I have done makes me tremble. I feel only gratitude to the investigating bodies that they captured me. It was not quite a confession. The police needed more. Once again, they tapped Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky, and because psychology is actually useful, despite what insecure, sexually repressed American suburbanites might tell you, the good doctor helped the killer open a doorway to his mind that, up until that point, remained securely shut. Here's the breakdown. Andre Chikatilo was born October 16, 1936, in the Ukrainian SSR. At that time, the country was in the throes of famine, with Chikatilo claiming to have not even tasted bread until he was 12. Under Stalin's forced collectivization of agriculture, an estimated 3 million people died of starvation and backbreaking labor. Hunger was such a relentless issue that the government released propaganda absolving cannibalism. From the time he was five, Andre's mother would often lament how his elder sibling had supposedly been eaten by hungry villagers. This story both horrified and captivated young Andre. Andre's father had been captured as a POW by Nazis during World War II, and in his absence, the boy shared a bed with his mother. He would routinely wet the mattress and subsequently receive beatings as punishment, instilling a deep sense of humiliation and self-hatred in the developing adolescent. Andre also said he witnessed his mother being raped, becoming pregnant, and bearing the child of a Nazi soldier. Chikatilo struggled to make social connections and was often bullied by his peers. Though his father was liberated in 1949, he was met with disdain by all those who knew him. Stalin had encouraged all Russian soldiers to fight to the death, making Andrei's father a much-hated coward by default. Eventually, their one-room family home was burned to the ground by neighbors. As the years passed, Chikatilo grew increasingly isolated, despite thriving in academic studies. He graduated high school in 1954, the same year he committed his first sadistic act with his sister's friend, 11-year-old Tanya Bala. Compelled by some sort of feral instinct, he pushed her to the ground and laid on top of her, ejaculating as she struggled. He later told psychiatrist, I knew then that I was aroused by seeing people suffer. Now, despite this noteworthy load blowing, Andre was otherwise impotent as fuck, fumbling many arranged dates during his college years. He even dated a young divorcee in town, but could not consummate the relationship. In an effort to salvage their romance, the woman innocently asked friends for advice on how to help her man overcome his inability to maintain an erection, but as a result, most of his peers discovered his secret. He stated, Girls were going behind my back, whispering that I was impotent. I was so ashamed. I tried to hang myself. My mother and some young neighbors pulled me out of the noose. 
Eventually, Andre fled his homeland entirely. Several years later, just as the doctor had predicted in his profile, Chikatilo shockingly convinced the woman, Theodosia Anacheva, to marry him. This union, essentially arranged by his younger sister, materialized a mere two weeks after their initial meeting. Now, once Andre's wife learned of his problems, they agreed she would conceive by him ejaculating externally and then manually placing his semen inside her. Somehow, their marriage produced two children, again, as predicted. Despite his intimate suffering, Chikatilo was a remarkably educated man. By 1971, he had degrees in Russian language and literature, engineering, and Marxism-Leninism. A devoted communist, he was considered a model citizen, an esteemed family man to the outside world, becoming a teacher of young minds. Now, while this was indeed a position worthy of respect, Andre near immediately experienced trouble controlling his students. As a result, violent thoughts he'd suppressed for years bubbled to the surface. It angered him that the kids he taught could fall in love and feel love, while he could experience and control neither. Andre began vengefully fondling himself in front of students and walking into the female dorms unannounced. He remained in power for years, molesting both boys and girls before finally being asked to resign in 1981. Soon after, he began a job as a supply clerk for a factory based in Rostov, a gig which required extensive travel across much of the Soviet Union. With diminished access to victims, he would eventually buy the dilapidated shack in Shakti, where his first gruesome murder would play out. Now, he intended the hut as a sort of retreat, a place to live out perverse sexual fantasies with the drug addicts and prostitutes, alcoholics and underage vagrants he promised food or money to in return for sexual favors. Instead, it became the womb wherein the Red Ripper was born. After two hours of speaking with Dr. Bukhanovsky, Chikatilo finally burst into tears and formally confessed to his unforgivable crimes. He gave a detailed description of each murder, consistent with known facts regarding each killing. When prompted, he drew a rough sketch of various crime scenes, indicating the location of bodies and multiple landmarks nearby. When discussing his victims, Chikatilo falsely categorized them as social outcasts. He detailed binding their hands behind their backs with rope before proceeding to end their lives. As a general rule, the majority of his victims succumbed to multiple stab wounds before facing acts of cannibalism, mutilation, and necrophilia. Andre later clarified that he craved human flesh while it was still warm, tearing at victims' genitalia, lips, nipples, and tongues with his teeth. He particularly enjoyed the mouthfeel of uterus and testicles, which is the worst sentence I have ever read out loud into a microphone. The Ripper also confessed that his attacks began with a series of shallow wounds on the chest before progressing to inflict more profound stab wounds in the same area, dozens of them, while humping the victim to sexual satisfaction. The stabbing was an effort to imitate having sex. 
Chikatilo admitted that their cries, the sight of blood, and their suffering brought him a sense of deep relaxation and pleasure. The nightmarish combination of killing and sexual gratification is clinically referred to as erotophonophilia, a variant of lust murder, which is notoriously difficult to identify due to the mess it makes at crime scenes. Now, when asked why most of his victims had been stabbed in the eyes, Chikatilo explained, despite his education, it was Russian superstition, folklore, that says the image of a murderer is burned onto the victim's eyes and he wanted to ensure that that never happened. Fucking idiot. Chilling in every way, Andre's case is nonetheless worthy of extensive psychological analysis. If only so we all remember why the fuck we need to collectively care for children and protect them from traumatic violence. For example, unresolved childhood experiences can spark a conflict between what Freud referred to as the id and superego, ultimately leading to the emergence of violent inclinations. During Chikatilo's formative years, he faced bullying at school and endured regular physical abuse and humiliation from his mother. Displaced aggression makes it possible for some individuals who harbor pathological resentment toward their abusers to act that violence out on innocents who resemble their abuser. The animosity remains pointed at the individual who caused them harm, but the violent acts are forced onto others, in Andre's case, women and children. On October 20th, 1991, Chikatilo was transferred to the Serbsky Institute in Moscow for a 60-day psychiatric evaluation where he was deemed mentally competent to stand trial. Now, he was brought to trial in Rostov on April 14th, 1992, charged with 53 counts of murder, in addition to five charges of sexual assault against minors committed during his time as a teacher. An open trial, Chikatilo's case was the first major media event in post-Soviet Russia, resulting in often contentious scenes between the judge, Chikatilo, and the victim's families. The OJ trial had nothing on this shit. At one point during the trial, Chikatilo stood up and exposed his limp dick to the entire courtroom, a misguided effort to emphasize its uselessness. And to no one's surprise, after about six months of an absolute shit show, Chikatilo was found guilty on October 14, 1992. A day later, he was formally sentenced to death, plus 86 years imprisonment for the 52 murders and assorted rapes. When asked to speak in response to the verdict, he again chose silence. On Valentine's Day, 1994, his appeals fully exhausted, Chikatilo was taken from his death row cell and brought to a soundproofed room to be executed. While I, your esteemed narrator, extend him no pity whatsoever, it's fair to make mention that on a day set aside to celebrate the love shared between people, Chikatilo died entirely alone for what he had done. Not even his wife was present in the end, though she did state that, quote, I simply crossed him out of my life as if he had never existed. We were never really in love anyway, not even when we got married. I only really married him because he was shy and modest and didn't drink or smoke. Andre Chikatilo, the notorious Red Ripper of Rastondan, 
was killed by a single gunshot behind his right ear. He was buried in an unmarked grave on prison property. And to leave your exhausted ears with at least somewhat of a silver lining, historians claim that due to Operation Forest Path, more than 1,000 unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes were solved. All right, we're back. What'd you think? Like, I'm so disassociated right now. That it's like, <laughs> the fuck am I even supposed to say? Um, I think that that version of the story is uh, absolutely fucking horrible and still somehow uh, less horrible than the initial draft. Um, people should know that there is more to this story. And if you are the type of person who likes to hear about uh, children being tortured, uh, I'm actually not going to tell you to go research more. I'm going to tell you to go directly to a fucking hospital <laughs> and talk to somebody about that because it's not normal and it's not okay. And you will eventually be caught down and executed. But um, I mean, honestly, though, where do we fit into that equation, though? Because we're we're bringing this story to people. Look, I, I do think it's important to tell stories like these ones so that um, people and, you know, maybe I'm being idealistic. Maybe it's dumb. But, uh, you know, like we did with the... Um, the previous episode this season about our uh, kids who kill mm -hmm. his story is a really great example of, of why you don't bring unwanted children into unstable situations and then force them to be in a lot of be alive in it i think it is actually important to hear stories like this because there are horrendous consequences to yeah. child abuse sure. and to not taking care of poor people yeah. and to demeaning people uh and to subjugating them and that's the, eventually their fucking brains break and mm -hmm. um this is a good if you don't like stuff like that if you don't want monsters like this to exist you have to actually take care of people um yeah. and, and that means maybe taxing some billionaires and uh, not um, turning your nose up at homeless people because they're homeless. You know, like it's... Of course. The the thing that really disturbed me in uh, the story was exactly how long they were hyper-focused on homosexuals and homeless people and vagrants um, because that was, you know, part of the whole Soviet thing at the time, but also... That that's not just a Soviet. They were clearly off. They I'm were not, they were I'm very not, very much off. Them. And you know we saw in in doing the research for this episode uh, and rewatching Mindhunter to to prep for our guests, uh, there were a couple lines in that show about oh well I, I think we're probably going after a homosexual or pedophile and the FBI mm -hmm. having to be like no you dipshits like it, yeah. every criminal yeah. isn't a black guy a homeless guy or a gay guy like it's, there's sure we're, we're missing a, yeah. a, a big thing. Um, yeah. I think this was an absolutely horrific story. I think it's fascinating that it was suppressed for so long. I think it shows how irresponsible it is to not share with people and their communities when these things are happening. But that mm -hmm. is actually a very common thing. It is a thing that still happens in the United States. Um, I think that hyper-focusing on them is uh, still not healthy for us or, or good. Sensationalizing them. You know, sure. the pe people sending sexy pictures of themselves to Manson and, you know, BTK and all of that, or you know, any of the people in prison, I should say. Um, you know, is, is That like, is actually uh, uh, a paraphilia. Known yes. As, known as hybristophilia. Oh. Oh, wow, you yeah, got, man, it's you, uh, it's you got the big words. people who have sexual interest or attraction to those who commit violent crimes. That is woof. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it it's just I, I was really deeply affected by this particular story, um, and um, I think that you did a great job 
retelling it as well as you could, but it is an, an overwhelming story um, uh-huh. filled with absolute heinousness and the worst of humanity on both ends. Sure. He was, sure. would you say Chikatilo was a monster? Oh, he specifically said that he was not a monster, mm-hmm. that that he was not born this way. Mm-hmm. And, and there is validity to that. I think sure. ultimately he became a monster. I think that his behavior uh, reflected that of a monster. But there is validity in his saying that, like, I wasn't born with this wanting to to be like this. I didn't sure. want my life to become this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talk about the making of a monster and whether it's nature versus nurture and you know, sometimes it's 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 even more than that. There are other dimensions to it. You can have a genetic predisposition to sociopathy or psychopathy, but in Andre Chikatilo's case, there there was also some biological factors. I'm not mm-hmm. just talking about genetics. I'm not talking about his heredity. Um, this man had something known as hydrocephalus, which mm-hmm. means that he had a buildup of fluid, fluid, a spinal fluid on his brain. That is what caused the the urinary tract issues that mm. caused the relentless bedwetting and eventually the erectile dysfunction. Oh, interesting. Also, when they did an MRI of his brain, like he had lesions all over his brain oh, as man. well, which so is so he what, had like real like brain and, rot and issues. So it, it it definitely impacted his ability to experience empathy, to experience guilt, things like that. But it was one of the reasons why he wore such thick glasses. The Mm. lesions were so prominent that they were actually causing him to go blind. Um, Something I do like about your story is that I do think it's a good balance to mine. Yours had uh, all of this backstory Mm -hmm. uh, on this person. We, we, the things that he did were horrible, but we know some of the reasons that he did them, or at least, you know, the, the trauma that led to them. And um, we have, there, there's a lot more questions about my story, so um, let's get into it. Let's get into it. The smell hit Julia as soon as she entered the cabin. It felt thick in her nostrils, a combination of sweet, mold, and funk, so startling it was like walking into a net. The space on either side of the doorway was nearly black, candlelight in one corner only barely illuminating the edge of a bed, maybe the arm of a chair. Julia looked over her shoulder and saw the stagecoach she'd taken to the Bender home disappearing down the dirt trail. A flash of heat lightning illuminated the nearly empty prairie briefly. She instantly regretted not riding her own horse. Julia found Kate inside, standing over an imposing walnut table, which took up most of the cabin's kitchen area. A reeking sink stacked with filthy dishes stood behind her. Candlelight flickered across her pale face as she prepared the circle on the table, dark eyes shining as she welcomed Julia to their seance. Julia looked around the decrepit little space, noticing piles of refuse and unlaundered clothes strewn about It was shocking to learn a woman like Kate lived like this. The sound of a fat, buzzing fly whizzed in her ear as she noted the tea-colored canvas curtain dividing the cabin into halves, obscuring the rest of the space. They appeared to be completely alone. She asked Kate if she'd come too early. Kate said no without looking up from the table. Tonight's summoning would be just the two of them. Non-believers, she explained, ruined everything, driving spirits away with their negativity. She gestured at the bench across from her, almost commanding Julia to sit. 
Julia watched a fly land on Kate's shoulder, pause, then rocket itself to a small window near the table, where it joined a dozen other dark, buzzing specks crawling on the curtain. The smell was making her nauseous, but Julia sat down stiffly. They'd been planning this all week. Kate was beautiful, poised and educated with high cheekbones and a tiny, almost feminine scar under one deep brown eye. She was the favorite of the men who frequented the hotel bar where they worked. Given her outspoken disdain for puritanical societal rules and body sense of humor, Julia had liked her instantly. When she'd learned Kate, too, was a devoted spiritualist, one who conducted seances of her own, Julia had been eager to spend the night with her, imagining a stately parlor filled with other interesting people, communing with the spirits of fallen Civil War fighters. But now, sitting across the table from Kate with the flickering candle between them, Julia felt uneasy. Kate seemed different. Her usual warmth was gone. The window of flies vibrated ominously, and the cabin smelled like a predator's mouth. Julia began dreading the idea of spending the night in this dark, dirty, claustrophobic box in the middle of the prairie. Kate eventually ordered Julia to close her eyes and began whispered chanting. She called in low tones to the dead, humming and chanting, welcoming, listening spirits to make their contact. Her fingers felt hot in Julia's clammy hands. They waited. Julia's breath began to feel narrow. Her chest tingled subtly. She tried to focus, but felt compelled to move, as if tiny electrical current waves were flowing through her muscles. Was this the presence of spirits? Were they here? Julia opened her eyes and felt her nervous system seize. Three faces stood behind Kate partially shadowed, uneven, and hard. Julia could make out only pieces of each. Ma Bender scowled down at her, flanked on either side by the grizzled bulk of the gray-haired Pa Bender and Kate's adult brother, John Jr. They said nothing. She could see something gripped in Pa Bender's hand, weighing down his muscled arm, hidden mostly behind the table, and her sense of dread intensified. Julia dropped Kate's hands and said hello to the benders, frantically trying to understand where they'd come from. No one had been in the cabin when she entered but Kate. No doors had opened since she sat down. She tried a feeble hello. Kate's eyes finally opened, but otherwise, nothing changed. Julia sat in the dark with the entire family staring silently back at her. Then an odd, high giggle from John Jr.'s end of the table made Julia jump in her skin. <laughs> the sound drove her from the bench. Stepping backwards, she said something about the bathroom and made for the front door, not bothering to grab her overcoat. As she opened the door, Julia heard the bang of something heavy behind her hitting the floor and broke into a full sprint. A shotgun blast shattered the night. Julia flattened herself to the ground, sound of blood rushing in her ears, trying to disappear into the knee-high grass. There was shouting in German coming out of the cabin, moving into the field. John Jr.'s giggle exploded off again, maybe 15, 20 yards behind her. Julia heard three distinct and different bodies moving around, one heavy and lumbering, two swift and able-footed, all creeping closer. Kate's voice called out her name again. Saccharine sweet this time. 
The light of a lantern bounced in the darkness. Julia could see it starting to illuminate the dirt gripped between her fingers. The older woman's voice, again in German, screeched from the porch through the air, and Julia could hear John Jr. cursing at Kate. They were too close now, just a few body lengths to her side, scanning the land. She had one shot. Julia heaved a large stone as hard as she could in the direction of Kate and John's voices, waiting for its impact to grab their attention. Once they began to follow its sound, she launched herself from the ground, skirts gathered in two panicked fists, legs pumping as hard as she could move them, eyes set on the scrubby brush next to the trail which led back towards town. The Bender family watched wordlessly as her frantic silhouette disappeared across the road and into the scrabbly tree line. Later that week, Jack Reed, a newer addition to Labette County, Kansas, would recall to listeners at the local watering hole, watching a woman sprinting the horizon near his tent as night fell, moving fast enough to reach the next cabin by dawn. Kansas has never been an easy place to live. Centuries before Little House on the Prairie romanticized a hard but honest life of living off the land, the Cherokee and Osage nations were already documenting the territory's unique challenges. Flash floods and deep freezes, animal attacks and famine. Flat and dusty, the area is prone to brush fires caused by lightning, months of relentless hot and cold, and the punishing cyclones made famous by the Wizard of Oz. The Kansas of the antebellum era immediately following the Civil War was especially brutal. A violently unstable expanse of underpopulated prairie, abolitionist free state Kansas shared a border with the aggressively pro-slavery Missouri, and the Confederate side remained outraged by Kansans long after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Bloody guerrilla warfare between the border ruffians and vigilance groups broke out constantly during the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, even as Fort Scott re-established itself as less of a muster point and more of an economic hub. Members of the Osage tribe had also been evangelized by missionaries right off their heritage land to make room for more white Christian colonists arriving from filthy port cities. And bitterness between the, quote, savages and settlers had the ability to turn deadly. So when a grim-faced, notoriously antisocial nut of a man named John Bender and a young man, simply called John Jr., arrived in Cherryvale, Kansas around 1870, no one particularly minded their oddness. Pretty much everyone on the frontier at that time was odd, hard, or damaged in some way. War, poverty, and the wilderness do have a way of doing such things to people. Pa, as John Sr. came to be called, was a consummate asshole. Rude and perpetually scowling, he primarily spoke German and often pretended not to understand English at all, though he did perfectly well. The younger man he traveled with was friendlier and almost handsome, were it not for a pair of eyes positioned a little too close together. But Junior had an uncontrollable tick, which caused him to giggle or laugh at strange moments, so most folks dismissed him as simple or feeble-minded. <laughs> the pair claimed 160 acres of land upon their arrival from elsewhere. Some stories say Pennsylvania Dutch country. They hand-built their 24-by-16-foot cabin on a carefully chosen plot just off the Osage Mission Trail, 
They dug a foundation, erected a wooden structure, put up a barn and corral, planted a modest little orchard. After about a year of digging, sawing, and building, Pa and Junior were joined by the rest of their family, Ma Bender, real name Elvira, and Kate, believed to be their 20-something-year-old daughter in the fall of 1871. Newspapers wrote that Elvira had, and this is a quote, the face of an old Dutch crone and was even nastier than her husband, prone to bouts of screaming in German and foaming at the mouth. Kate, by comparison, was very pretty, well-postured, and spoke almost perfectly unaccented English. Once the women arrived, a small misspelled sign advertising groceries, as well as a bed and hitching post for travelers, went up on cabin property. And thus, the very small, very modest Bender Inn was born. The Benders had smartly planted their roots far enough from any town to be a welcome respite for travelers along the Osage Trail in either direction. Fort Scott was 20 full miles away. The last stop en route from Cherryvale before entering open country, the inn was less a hotel and more a dirty hovel with a canvas curtain sectioning off a stained floor mattress stuffed with hay. But given the terrain and savageness of the weather, a roof, fire, pillow, and safe place to water horses were all most people really needed or wanted. And once word got out that the striking and personable Kate Bender played hostess for guests, the shitty little Bender Inn seemed even more appealing to journeymen. Kate was unlike any other woman in Labette County. A self-proclaimed professor of healing arts and a spirit medium, she spoke passionately about God, the dead, and the ability of unseen forces to perform miracles, if only people believed in them, and avowed spiritualist at a time when spiritualism was comforting the broken hearts of war widows and trauma survivors across a nation. She ministered to the bereaved, arranging seances and showing up at funerals of strangers to offer her services. She sold Pennsylvania Stutch-style powwow charms, another name for hoodoo satchels of dried herbs and blessed trinkets, for fertility, good luck, and safety sometimes pressing them benevolently into the palms of seriously ill townsfolk with a smile. For a $5 fee, she could allegedly help locate lost items with the help of ghosts. Kate was also one of the frontier's earliest documented proponents of free love. In public lectures, dark eyes aflame and bosom thrust out, she trashed what she characterized as, quote, the miserable requirements of self-constituted society, including traditional monogamy and the idea that women were their husband's property. One newspaper quote her directly. Shall we confine ourselves to a single love and deny our natures their proper sway? Even though it be a brother's passion for his own sister, I say it should not be smothered. Though her ideas troubled some of the area's more traditional settlers, the fantastically named Leroy Dick, a town trustee and unofficial lawman of Labette County, wrote that he suspected she was a common grifter. She and John Jr. nonetheless assimilated easily into the local community. They attended church and Bible study. John Jr. may have been a little feeble, but his knowledge of scripture and ability to quote it on command was admirable to any good Christian. And Kate endeared herself to so many young men that the Bender cabin, for a time, 
always seem to have at least a few visiting horses parked outside. Besides, Labette County had much bigger problems than a potentially kooky goth hottie who occasionally talked to ghosts. As we've already laid out, the frontier of the late 1800s was a deadly place. Given lack of access to medical care, the barbaric quality of surgery at the time, and the perils of the wilderness, life expectancy on the western prairie hovered around age 35 to age 50, depending on gender and profession. It was expected that travelers, even the most experienced trappers and traders, would die traversing the Osage Trail. It was just the nature of these things. But around 1871, a sharp uptick in missing peoples started to garner attention from the entire state of Kansas. Bereft wives wrote to family and newspapers about husbands who seemed to disappear into thin air. The railway company, inching its way through the territory, noted men contracted to work, never showing up at the job site. The family of a much-loved widower and his adorable toddler daughter, Marianne, mailed pleas across Kansas asking if he and the girl had been seen by anyone. In October 1872, two boys fishing near Big Hill Creek came across the bloated, reeking body of a man with a crater bashed into the back of his skull. Once the corpse had been dragged out and turned over, a foul, ragged, inch-deep gash across the equator of his neck revealed itself. This was not the body of some unfortunate fallen rider or some unsuspecting snakebite victim. The Kansas Democrat and Osage Mission Transcript printed the coroner's full report, decrying the, quote, hellish and barbarous crime as an obvious murder. Within a week, one of the distressed wives of those mysteriously missing husbands turned up and identified the body of her husband, William York, a father who'd been using the trail to travel from their homestead to town to pay some bills. Within three months of the grisly discovery, as many more men disappeared on the trail, one of them the boisterous cousin of lawman Leroy Dick. A Civil War hero named Henry McKenzie from Indiana, McKenzie had been on his way back from Dick's home in November of 1872 when letters to his wife and children simply stopped. It was bizarre. Henry adored his family and would never simply abandon them. He was in absurd good health upon leaving the Dick homestead, he was a gifted father and accomplished writer, but he was never seen alive again. Something, and more likely someone, was killing solo travelers along the only safe route through Osage County, and it was doing so regularly. With no organized law enforcement in the still developing area, vigilance groups, an early name for bands of vigilantes, started organizing themselves to ride from town to town, tracking the missing and collecting lists of potential suspects. But given the total lack of bodies and the killer's aggressive head start, it wasn't until spring of 1873 that a break in the case actually came. William York had been the brother of a rising political superstar in Kansas named Alexander York when he too, very suddenly, vanished without a trace around Labette County. Well-connected and part of what was considered a famously good family from the area, though he rarely identified himself as one of the Yorks, 
William's disappearance sparked an aggressive search of every single home in the Labette area. Alexander himself jumped off the campaign trail to be part of the vigilance group, which stopped at the Bender Family Inn in April of that year. And what he experienced there was bizarre. Alexander, his brother Ed, and the men with them were almost immediately set upon by a screaming, babbling Ma Bender the moment they set foot in the squalid, stinking cabin, spittle flying from her raging mouth as Junior and Kate worked to drag her away, then subdue her outside. Once the old woman had been pacified, Kate extended her deepest sympathies to Alexander and flirtatiously offered her services as a medium to help locate his brother for a price. Junior giggled uncontrollably in one corner, while Pa Bender glared in at the tableau from outside, palpably agitated, but saying nothing. The Yorks were not charmed by Kate, nor were they interested in her offer to commune with spirits to find their very likely dead sibling. Dismissing the whole family as barking mad, they rode back off to Cherryvale, utterly frustrated. Once back around the vigilance group's makeshift work table at the local hotel, cup of whiskey in hand, Alexander began to vent about the absurd experience with the crazy Germans up at the Bender Inn. The fantastically named Leroy Dick was present and suddenly felt an urge of anxiety and disgust in his gut. Dick explained that over the last year, the Benders had fallen out of favor in their small community due to a combination of Ma and Pa's volatile personalities, Junior's increasing weirdness, and Kate's shameless tendency to hound vulnerable widows and sick folk to pay her for faith healing and psychic services. He recalled a very strange report from one Julia Hester once a friend of Kate's, who'd complained for a time to anyone who'd listened that the Benders had lured her to their home for a seance, then tried to kill her. No one had believed Julie at the time because the story was so outlandish, but the visiting vigilantes listened with increasing intensity. The next day, they began interviewing townspeople in earnest and learned that another local family complained early in the Bender's tenure in Labette that they too had been lured to the filthy little inn. Kate had suggested the party take an evening stroll and, according to the victims, Junior then robbed their saddlebags during the course of the evening. The case had been investigated when it happened, but the Benders blamed roving trail thieves. And with no evidence to the contrary, everyone had let the whole accusation go. Another townsman dropped the bombshell that he'd heard Kate and Junior were not brother and sister at all, but lovers. Perhaps married, perhaps not, but certainly odd and absolutely crawling with sin. And his name was not even John Bender Jr., but John Gebhardt. Leroy Dick suddenly recalled the horrifying hole in the skull of the dead man fished from the creek a year prior, and Julia Hester's claim that Pa Bender had been holding something heavy and frightening in one hand. By the time the vigilance group returned to the Bender homestead, the property was completely empty. The family wagon, normally visible from the road, was gone. Wonky wheeled tracks still visible in the mud down the trail. When Leroy Dick, Alexander and Ed York, and the rest of the team got indoors. The midday sun had amplified the putrid smell tenfold, no longer covered by the scent of food, Kate's perfume, or the distracting chatter of John Jr. It had the unmistakable reek of death. With some anxious searching, the team soon found a hidden trap door in the cabin floor, leather strap concealed from plain view by the walnut table. 
Everyone immediately regretted opening it. A wave of putrefaction and flies ascended from out of the pitch black square like a hell mouth. One of the vigilantes vomited onto the cabin floor, the rest scrambling to cover their noses and eyes. Insects crawled up between the floorboards, and a hesitant look into the space revealed a cellar, haphazardly stained with something rust-colored, something truly terrible and absolutely deadly had happened here. It took several days, over two dozen pairs of hands, and an entire town's sanity to finally unearth what had really been happening at the Bender Inn all along. The cabin was moved off its foundation so that the cellar could be exposed fully to the brightest sunlight. A blood-soaked basement of death coated in entrails and effluvium was revealed. It wasn't clear initially whether the butchery was human or animal, given the lack of bodies. As the party worked to try and find where, if anywhere, on the property the missing men they sought were, Leroy Dick searched what remained inside the cabin and found three heavy, frightening hammers. One, a handmade sledgehammer, had deep, dark stains on its menacing rockhead. Within another few days, it became clear that several mounds of what had originally appeared to be piled compost in the orchard were actually mass graves. They dug and dug. One body, two, three, then another and another, all partially or fully nude, all with skulls bashed in by something blunt and heavy, all with horrifying, frayed gashes drawn across the neck like bled livestock. And then came the body of the little girl, two or three years old at most, the color of her skin and dirt in her throat, made clear she'd been buried alive. Eleven bodies were found in total on the Bender property, ten in the orchard, one standing upright in their well, loaded like a bullet into a chamber, all except the little girl, confirmed as the daughter of the widower Longacre, had been brained and then had their throats deeply cut. All were front-page national news by the end of the week. The media sensation was every bit as disgusting and unethical as the news we still see today any time a serial killer is revealed. The local railroad, eager to cash in, set up temporary stops close to Labette, allowing cars packed with disaster porn collectors the chance to see the cabin and graves very up close. The visitors stole everything not nailed down inside the cabin, tearing up plants from the garden and dirt from the cellar, displaying the macabre knickknacks back in their own homes or selling them for profit. Reports from the coroner and investigators seemed to agree that each victim had been selected because they were solo travelers. One was a doctor, another a traveling lawyer, another that farmer going to pay his bills. The bender had tried to make sure that they killed outsiders only, not realizing that war hero Mackenzie of Indiana was actually their own Leroy Dick's cousin and completely unaware that a very famous politician's brother had sat in their home. There was no way to prove who had done what or when. Based on Julia Hester's account, most stories assert Kate was the serial-killing mastermind, using her charm to snare victims and then forcing her family into accomplicing, slitting their throats as part of witchcraft or ritual after one of the men smashed them into a stupor from behind. But that's conjecture. Writers of this time loved to call basically anything bad women did witchcraft. 
and outside of her psychic medium Grift, Kate never showed the slightest interest in occultism. Ma and Pa Bender could have been performing their eerie instability, using the beautiful Kate as bait. John Gebhardt could have been a brilliant actor and a brute killer, or he could have been a quietly giggling bystander. The smell of the cabin did ensure that all four were very guilty in some way, either of partaking in the killings or simply keeping the terrifying secret. A nationwide outcry for the Bender's heads screamed off the front pages for weeks on end. One poor soul, the Bender's nearest neighbor and fellow German immigrant, was strung up by his neck three times in a single night by a lynch mob, erroneously convinced he must know the family's whereabouts. Fortunately for him, the rope snapped after he'd gone unconscious and the crowd had left, leaving the innocent and traumatized man alive to flee Kansas and probably avoid human contact for fucking ever after. But despite the rage of the Yorks, an influential family with political clout, the ire of Leroy Dick, his own cousin found mutilated within the mass graves, and the fiercest animosity of the entire frontier, the Benders seemingly got away with everything. Eyewitnesses on a train platform the night the Benders fled Labette swore they saw the family emerge from the woods, where the family dog and wagon were eventually found together. Don't worry, animal lovers, the dog was very much alive, though very sad about being abandoned. Ma and Pa allegedly hopped a train to Missouri, with Kate and John heading to Texas. Others swore they divided along gender lines, with the women heading to one state and the men to another with no real organized law enforcement anywhere in the area and suspects scattered across state lines, jurisdiction became a complicated issue. A federal order was needed to send the army in after each escapee, and none was issued. No one suspected of being a bender could be brought in on hearsay alone. And so, like so many other outlaws of the wildest west, the group simply slunk into the kind of relative anonymity generations dominated by the internet and facial recognition can only fantasize about. Now, there is one odd epilogue to this story of familial serial killer. Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of The Little House on the Prairie, was reared on Kansas's flat, dusty brushlands not far from Labette. One night, at a little bookstore event years after the initial publication of her now very famous books, Wilder told an audience of enthralled listeners how she and her father had stopped at the Bender Inn while traveling the Osage Trail to their homestead, and how on another evening, not so very long after, a band of vigilance men on horses had arrived at their house, calling for her own pa's help saying that the murderers had finally been found and his services were needed. Mr. Ingalls had ridden off into the night with his gun and knife. When he came back home a few days later, he announced to Laura and the rest of the family that no one in Kansas would ever have to worry about the bloody benders ever again.
The Red Ripper or the Bloody Benders. Yeah. I mean, these fucking names. I know. Unbelievable. Like, know. no wonder people get fixated on these, like, fairy tale versions of killers. Yeah, we literally, stuff, like, you know? we give them, it's like, punk rock band names. Unbelievable. And, and then we, like, it, we have handsome people play them on TV. We make uh, it, we light them incredibly. Like, it, it we we are kind of, anyway. Yeah. F- fuck this. Uh, what did you think of my story? <laughs> I thought your story was absolutely terrifying from a a literary point of view i mean you you constructed a wonderful detailed analysis that transported me into the home um palpably it oh, was good. it was fascinating did you feel claustrophobic um god cla- i wouldn't say claustrophobic Damn. okay no, that's what i was going no, for no but i mean i could smell the place okay and that's good i'll take it, that it, it reminded me of some weird places i had been as a kid and oh, uh, yeah i know Edward. <laughs> I've, I mean, you do, you did grow up in a swamp. I've had a wild life, but <laughs> nonetheless, it um, just ooh, this sense of stale, moldy, muggy darkness yeah, where th- there's th- just something is there's ooh. something rotting in the wall, like, and it might not even be something physical, but something spiritual, like just yes. a black hole in the world or a hell mouth, as you described Thank it. You. you know, just a gateway to another place, and this place where where this strange place out in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. seemed to be an access point to something much, much darker than than some people who just wanted to rob and maim some people on their way through town. This... This thing went deep. Yeah, it it definitely did. And, you know, it's... um we think about the prairie and we immediately think about Little House on the Prairie. Uh, like, and so you do kind of like, or at least I do anyway. I, I, I mean, I'm in the age bracket. I'm not of people taking who, it from you. No, I, mean, I grew up in the age bracket of people who read those books. Uh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we would catch the reruns of the show, but like, it, it, the prairie was part of the fucking wild frontier. It was mm-hmm. a terrifying place. It was a excellent place to to uh commit murders like these for you know you, you see them killing right in their own town over and over and over again and had they not chosen two people mm-hmm. recklessly mm-hmm. they probably would have gotten away with it for a lot longer before they got caught it was only because you know eventually Leroy Dick's family got drawn into it sure. fantastically named Leroy Dick, oh, and, Leroy and, Dick and this famous politician's brother had they not right. m- murdered him there's a really good chance that they, they would have continued on for quite some time um, mm-hmm. it is worth mentioning that while there's that epilogue and Laura Ingalls Wilder did say this at a couple different readings uh, over a couple different years she told this story but memory is an unreliable narrator and an unreliable yeah. thing and yeah. so it the timeline people have pointed out is a little hairy like Laura Ingalls and the Pa Ingalls the whole Ingalls family did live around Labette County at around that time but it seems like Laura probably would have been a little too young uh, to remember a vigilance group coming mm-hmm. like she would have had to be three or four when it happened and then there are some people who say that the benders fled before she was even born sure and you know record keepings are funky it, also it would have been very easy for a, a, a young laura to remember her parents saying oh we did stop at this inn because they did live mm-hmm. along the road where that sure. inn w- was but then pa being contacted about a different vigilance group issue later on and her sort of conflate those things so it's possible that that story is not accurate at all well do Um, you think that they were brought to vigilante justice or do you think that they you know kind of filtered out into the world that's a great question i i need to do more research on it to to give you a solid answer my guess is that i don't think that they were ever brought to justice it feels like they did a pretty good job of just kind of disappearing um 
there was an interesting case that I'll talk about in a future secret story time for people. But it looks like two people, whether they were Ma and Kate or not, were accused of being Ma and Kate and mm. got arrested and busted for a crime later. And it seems like some of the the charges in that crime had more to do with people thinking maybe this is Ma and Kate than the actual. It's it's a whole Fascinating. thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, my opinion at this time, based on the level of research I've done so far, is that I think they just kind of disappeared into the frontier and got away with it. It's interesting because, you know, if they did get away with it, it seems like the likelihood would have been that wherever they settled in whatever other town further out west, that they would have gone back into this cycle of, of robbing and killing, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that's the weird thing about the Benders. And that's the weird thing about serial killers in general. Like mm-hmm. there's no there's no prototype. We, we kind of have an idea of, of the serial killer archetype that we we gravitate toward as we've right. talked about our, already in our, our our little introductions but there is no one size fits all yeah in terms of motivation methodology mm-hmm. how stupid they are how smart they are where they're from their influence their culture their their ethnicity you name it right right but what I think is kind of interesting about this group is that let's say they were a family. Mm-hmm. Just for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. there's something about this kind of shared experience where the benders almost act acted like a single organism. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, and absolutely, so yes. If, you know, guys and girls went one way and, you know, the other way they split up, maybe there being like a bisection of said organism, that's why. Like they needed each other to be this way. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think that the the really good chance is that – what you're saying is true, that once you divided the organism, it it just didn't function the same way Mm -hmm. or – like we said earlier, the frontier was a terrifying place. There was no DNA evidence. It was easy to bury bodies and have people. It's possible that once you didn't have that very tight knit and very isolated group, sure. that maybe whoever was the the psycho killer in the mix who just couldn't stop continued to do it, but just found um, a less learned learned their lesson, mm-hmm. like found a less conspicuous way to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we should talk about this with some very well seasoned. Uh, gentlemen um, who have a lot of insight about serial killer storytelling. Let's get to our guest. All right. Gary, it's time to serve a, it's time to serve the boil. Well, hello, guests. Uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us here in Satan's Taint, Louisiana, during a 115 degree. Smells uh, like it. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great. Um, <laughs> we're just having a blast. <laughs> you said you smell delicious. Um so let's just get directly into, uh, I, I don't want to say the meat of the subject because it feels that's, like deeply yeah, inappropriate you're, after you're the stories that we heard. Line, that's it. Yeah, I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> yeah, let's ask our guests, first of all, since this is a show where we've just shared some very horrifying stories, um, Holt, were you a, a person who was kind of into serial killer lore or the pop culture interest in it at any point before you were being paid to be interested in it? Well, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I was always fascinated uh, by the Manson family as an example. Mm. And um, I remember many years later when I was 
doing the show Mindhunter for Netflix with my friend Michael. Hi, Michael. <laughs> I got to uh, to travel to to the um, the medical hospital in Vacaville, which is actually a, for California, which is actually a prison. Right. And uh, I got to meet uh, several times, you know, with a guy named Bobby Beausoleil, a um, a former friend and uh, a musician who jammed frequently with uh, with Charlie, mm-hmm. and um, he really kind of like uh, told he's been in prison for coming up on fifty three years, wow. I think. Jeez. You know, for the murder of a musician named Gary Hinman in Topanga Canyon, mm-hmm. which people have tried to characterize as the catalyst, you know, for the Tate LaBianca murders. Um, right. I'm not sure that you know that that's not an oversimplification, but definitely my 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 interest in it you know became much keener when we were when we were doing a television show where we would interview a different serial killer every yeah. week and those in your audience who haven't watched the show um it's still up on netflix and it's a great show so i would encourage people to i would venture to out. guess there is not a single person listening to this show that has not seen mindhunter <laughs> yes and is, we 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 should have started by saying we are outraged by it being canceled midway through like we got so invested in season one and season two and a whole you're fantastic in it like tench is uh he's he's so straight laced but he's so tortured and he's got the sun and we were like you're giving it oh god it's just we're very upset about the cancellation Absolutely. We're, we're, we're the this is the type of show where we write to netflix and go, i'm very angry at you for doing this so <laughs> yeah stern letter sternly there, worded yeah. letter uh and we feel the same way which is part of the reason we asked you guys to be on which brings me to michael michael you you know I don't actually know about the serial killer history in West Virginia, but can you tell me if you, you know, beyond being an overt Talking Heads fan? um... (laughs) Well, I I did. I was not I wouldn't say I was necessarily serial killer focused, but listen how gentle his voice is. He (laughs) has committed murder. He's definitely professionally. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I did. As a kid, I was a big fan of monster movies, and especially, you know, the old black and white universal mm-hmm. ones. And and I did always kind of side with the monster. Like, you know, I sort of <laughs> felt like Frankenstein didn't ask to be put together, you know. Right. He, yes. And, you know, right. he thought the little girl looked like a flower, so he threw her in the water, you know. And then <laughs> next thing you know, the town villagers are all like, you know, uh, coming with pitchforks. So, compassionate man. And, I love and this. King Kong didn't ask to be dragged no. off this lovely he island. Lovely and, island. You know, did a good yeah. thing going. So, they ruined the whole thing. So I I love those kinds of movies. And then when when horror films started to transition into more events that could actually happen right. in the world and that and you started getting into the sobs of the world right. and those kinds of things, I, I actually started to kind of back out of it then because then it was that started to be a little too much. It was okay when it was sort of a fantastic fantasy land monster kind of thing, but when it was actually things that did happen to some people, I stopped finding it as entertaining. So I sure. actually stopped watching. Like, I don't think I've ever seen any of the Saw films. I don't think um, you would like them. Yeah, I kind of, I saw a couple of the early things like that and was like, I I got this. I know what it is. And I don't need to fill <laughs> yeah, my I'm head out. with it anymore. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting, you know, when we went to work on Mindhunter, doing that reading and doing that research and stuff was kind of the first time that I'd sort of forced myself back into 
exposing myself to all of that. Right, right. Holt, is, do you recall like the first piece of work that you saw or were really affected by that was, you know, about a human monster or about a serial killer? Was there a movie or a TV show or something uh, at any point that you were like, oh, this story, you know, really fascinates me or has ensnared me? This was done really well. Well, I remember, I mean, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he's a serial killer, but I, I, I remember um, being deeply intrigued by Kubrick's uh, A Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. and uh, a protagonist that was into what he called the old ultraviolence, if you remember <laughs> Michael McDowell's, um, you know, unforgettable performance yes. um, uh, in, 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 in that film. And uh, my friends and I would go, they would do midnight shows mm-hmm. and we were teenage boys, you know. And so, you know, we would dress all in white with the black bowler hats <laughs> that wow. the hats, you know, and try to, uh, you know, I- I- imitate uh, Alex and the boys. So, um, yeah, you know, um, I mean, I guess if that's what uh, what Michael is referring to by, you know, identifying with the mindset with the monsters, I definitely saw myself as the Malcolm McDowell character. <laughs> OK, so you I mean, you had a, a dark streak even as a young man so when when fincher first approaches you with mindhunter were you champing at the bit or did you kind of take a step back and say i i don't know this material might be a bit heavy i don't know if i want to go there to be honest with you you know i didn't realize initially when david called i you know i i i I wasn't really familiar with the work of robert wrestler and robert wrestler was of course you know, uh, an FBI agent in the behavior, behavioral science unit, later the what became the behavioral analysis unit. It, it, you know, yeah. he was partners, John Douglas and all of that stuff. And so, you know, I, I didn't really I didn't really understand that that David was talking about one of the protagonists. You know, I had worked for him in the past, but in small parts, you know what I mean, uh, in movies like Fight Club and right. Alien 3. And, you know, um, when I realized that Bill Tench was going to be a major, major character on the show and that, you know, this was really David offering me what felt like for me, like a big promotion, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Then I became super excited about it. And look, as Michael will tell you, do you know what I mean? I mean, he was there with me, you know, um, we're talking about uh, one of the best filmmakers of his generation. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So it's so it's exciting, you know, every day, you know, for an actor when you get to step onto the set and know that you're going to work with a director who cares that much about, you know, about the, about, about the material and about, you know, just. His... <laughs> so, yeah, so it was uh, it was it was. um it was a really it was a really memorable experience, you know, and I, 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 you know, I share your pain to a certain degree. We were we were hoping that it would continue. Um, but, you know, um, even having had the opportunity to do a couple of seasons uh, of it, you know, I got no regrets. You know, what I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't give back that experience. It's still one of my one of my favorite things I've ever done in the business. The performance is spectacular. Um, you, you know, some of our, our heartbreak is not getting to see some more of the serial killers, you know, brought to life through these like really remarkable character actors who came in and, you know, did, did that work as Manson. And, uh, but it, 
my heart breaks. Like, I wanted to know what happened with Bill and his son. Like, I don't know which is Bill's son. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it is yeah. really hard as viewers to, to lose a show midway through that way. Hold you, you may be able to confirm or deny this, but is the reason why I, cause a lot of people still ask this question. I'm like, why did this show go off the air? They don't understand it. It was so beloved. Was it mainly just about Fincher having other projects, just kind of moving on to other things, scheduling issues with everybody involved? Well, look, you know, I, I, I can't really speak for David. You know, um, you know, he's uh, he's addressed this issue uh, in interviews and stuff like that. Um, it was a very expensive show to produce, right. very expensive. And, you know, it wasn't like we were doing the same kind of ratings like Stranger Things. Sure. You know what yeah. I mean? Or some big hits on, on Netflix. You know, but we, we did have um, fans of the show that were really passionate uh, uh -huh. about the show really loved the show you know they have to have enough eyeballs you know what i mean to justify yeah. the expense yeah also it was a very i think it was a very difficult show you know you know for david because remember like you know he doesn't do anything halfway right. you know, if david's gonna right. do something he's gonna he's gonna put all of his energy and all of his talent and all of his time into something so you know he moved to pittsburgh you know um and oversaw every aspect of the production so he he personally directed four episodes out of the first 10 mm -hmm. right. but he was in charge of the whole production directed most of the reshoots mm -hmm. you know um directed multiple episodes in the second series was there all day long every day wow you know and look i, I won't name names but I, I subsequently did a show for a showrunner who and i won't say who it is because you know i don't have to criticize anybody and sure. in, 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 you know but you know never visited the set i'm talking mm -hmm. about right. a showrunner sure yeah. i'm yeah. talking about the boss Right. who lives in another country and never into we did two seasons of the show just like we did on Mindhunter and never hmm. once Wolf. visited wow. as a control set. freak the that sounds astonishing thing i've ever seen yeah so so with david you know uh, uh you don't have that problem he's right. in his office <laughs> or he's and if you have a question and or you have an idea that you'd like to present you know he's open to that um, you know, he's a much more collaborative guy than people that he is. Mm -hmm. And his uh, his mantra is that the best idea wins. Right. So that idea might come from, you know, uh, one of his actors, uh, you know, but even if it comes from, you know, the Dolly grip, you know, nothing, nothing against my friends that are that are Dolly grips. You know what I mean? But like <laughs> a good idea. You know what I mean? Um, you know, you know, David, David may go for it. Right. Do, do, do you know what I mean? So, so, um, so that's exciting too, because it really motivates you to do your homework and to do as much, much research as you can about each of the killers. And, you know, uh, because you never know what might spark an idea. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That, yes. that yeah. might be interesting when you're in rehearsal. And right. what horrible, horrible homework to have to do consistently. I mean, I yeah. know it's fascinating, but my, Michael, for you, so for people who don't know Michael, Michael has played more than a few, uh, killers he's played one of the greatest serial killers in fiction lore which is sweeney todd i right. think we could safely say that sweeney todd fits the profile of serial far superior far to su the cinematic version yes that, yes uh, My, we Mike, michael was a, a, a standalone um sweeney todd in his own right but also sweeney fits the profile of a, a classic serial killer and that the, right. there's a pattern uh there's more mm -hmm. than three um, there's consistencies and ritual to how he did it. True. Um, the singing, maybe not always uh, a part of the typical serial killer profile. That, that was but just a little, little plus. The, a little so lanyard. I'm going to ask Colt about what the homework that he had to do and that all of you had to do to sort of participate mindfully in Mindhunter. But like, what kind of research, if any, did you find yourself mired in to like prepare for, I'm, I'm going to play some, some psychopathic behavior. To play Sweeney? Yeah. Or, um, 
I guess there's not as much research to do necessarily, sure. you know, for that. Victorian um, penny dreadful. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I familiarized myself with the the cultural uh, beginnings of, of the Sweeney mm-hmm. Todd story, really just sort of to immerse myself in the world more than anything else. It right. wasn't really necessary. I think a lot of times the the research that actors do is not specifically to get uh, some bit of information that you think you're going to actually use mm-hmm. in the performance. It's just, just kind of immerse yourself in the world and and put yourself in a place that's different from the places you know. Right. Um, and often you discover things that uh, are actually not helpful. I remember <laughs> when I was doing a lot of reading about John Wilkes Booth when I was doing Assassins, and I discovered that Booth was uh, killed just before what would have been his 27th birthday. Mm -hmm. So when he died, he was actually 26. But there's a lyric in Assassins (laughs) where the... the balladeer says uh, 27 years of age. Yes. And um, so I went to Stephen Sondheim oh, no. and said, you know, Steve, in my research, I discovered that uh, Booth was actually 26. And he was quiet for a minute. And then he said, yeah, 27 sounds better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll go, yeah, we'll yeah, go with that, your that's idea, still, Steve. That, that's, that's that's a, you know what, Steve? Yeah. Uh, we're going to let you have this one. Now, yeah. your, your character, uh, Ted Gunn, in Mindhunter, Michael, uh, he wasn't based on a real person. No, he was kind of an aggregate of the the blue flamers in general. So, so what was your inspiration or where did you draw from or where did you see the importance of this character in the central narrative of Mindhunter in this very real time in American history? Well, I I read John Douglas's book, you know, to begin with and uh, just to be as familiar as possible with the world and read some other, you know, books by people in, in that, you know, that genre. Yeah. Um, but then from there, really a lot of my uh, time went into just immersing myself in the script and, mm-hmm. and right. the process of doing Mindhunter as, you know, Holt knows better than I um, was so unique. You know, we would sit and work, we would have table work for a week or two weeks mm. before each block of, of episodes mm-hmm. where we sat, all the actors sat around the table with Fincher and, um, and the writers were either there with us or on, you know, remote uh, Zoom stuff. Um, and we went through every script and did, mm-hmm. you know, did rewrites and read through the scenes several times and talked about them and what made sense, what did we not understand. Mm-hmm. What, you know, it's the kind of stuff that you do on a play, but you never, in my experience, ever do on a television show sure. or a film. Mm-hmm. And we did that all of the time. And it, in that's fascinating. It was, it was amazing because yeah. it really connected you with the, Material right. and gave you a lot of a lot of opportunity, like Holt was saying, to offer an idea or an observation, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. say, you know, th- I don't understand this, or what about this? And I think it saved time ultimately on the set because a lot of the questions that sometimes get asked on the set and stop filming in the middle because somebody realizes, oh, oh. right, we completely right. missed this point right. in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, those things were, were settled beforehand. And right. and also you'd had time to work and actually rehearse these scenes, which, sure. you know, yeah. it makes things so much more rich and stuff. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of my experience. I did, I did a, a fair amount of reading beforehand, but then once we started actually filming, it was just the deep participation in, and 
the writers on that show and and Fincher were such an incredible resource. I mean, mm. most of what you needed was either on the page or in Fincher's head. And, right. And he was going to get it into your head one way or another. Right. Mm. So, Holt, what kind of research did you end up doing to sort of prep for the role? And in doing that research, did you find anything that, like, really unnerved you? You know, you're a... Um, a powerful and masculine man in your many performances. You, you play a lot of military guys and cops and, you know, like people who seem really tough. So is it possible to rattle holes? Project Mayhem. Right, Project, is, it, is there anything that gets <laughs> under your skin and makes you go, Ugh, actually, I don't really like that at all. Well, you know, sure. I mean, you know, in terms of, in terms of what kind of research you do, uh, you try to do everything that you can possibly think of and you know, visiting Quantico, uh, the FBI headquarters, like, you know, going to visit John Douglas, you know what I mean? As soon mm-hmm. as I was authorized to do so, you know, we had another, um, a guy, uh, Bill McCrary, who had been a, a, a colleague of, of John, Robert Ressler was dead. He died in 2013 and we didn't start, you know, uh, I didn't find out I was going to be good doing the thing until 2016. So I couldn't meet with him. Sure. Um, but I would have I would have liked to met him. But I met as many of the guys who had been in the behavioral science unit as I could. Wow. And, you know, and I went to went to, to spend a weekend with John Douglas at his home in Virginia. And, you know, and and then later, you know, I tried to meet as many of the serial killers as I could. I remember famously, I I, um, oh boy. I had <laughs> and a guy still a friend who had been wrongfully convicted of murder. Mm. And I won't get into all the details of that story because it's a long conversation. But anyway, um, he was uh, he was sentenced to 25 years to life, you know, um, for a crime that he didn't commit mm. and has been incarcerated for the better part of 20 years. But I had been to prison multiple times to see that young man. And um, in conjunction with another project that I was researching and developing and, you know, and then I got, you know, um, I was doing Mindhunter and I found out that he was working in the prison library with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam in a place called the Shawangunk Correctional Facility in upstate New York, about two hours north of Manhattan. I got a message to uh, my friend, a young man, his name is John Juca. And um, and he said, you know, uh, look, I, I I spoke to 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 David. He says he'll meet with you. You know, mm. I was very sure to. I was very, you know, and, and David had kind of rebranded himself, you know, the 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 son of hope instead of the son of Sam. But <laughs> right. he had converted to. He became a born Christian, and he received a lot of visitors at the time, but they were mostly people from the church. Mm-hmm. And he had a deep distrust of the media, probably for 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 very good, good reasons. reasons, you know, and. Uh, you know, but I, I made it a point to to say to uh, to John Juca, my friend, you know, look, you know, like I'm not going to ask him to rehash the details of his crimes. You know, those were all the way back in the late 70s. Do you know what I mean? You know, uh-huh. um, there are decades, decades in the past. Volumes have been written about them. And it doesn't interest me. What interested me was to sit with the guy and see who he is now, because the big question, you know, that that existed in my mind was you know, this issue of like nature versus nurture, right? Uh-huh. And a lot of the law enforcement guys that I had met with, uh, including Mr. McCrary, had used, uh, you know, uh, uh, these analogies, like if you're making a cake, right? And you put all the ingredients in the cake, the butter and the eggs and the sugar and the flour and everything you need to make the cake. But just before you put it into the oven, some motor oil spills into that cake. <laughs> and you take that cake out of the oven, can you get that motor oil out of the cake? You know, it's like these... 
gentlemen, you know, and again, I don't mean to put words in their mouth, but they didn't strike me as as having a lot of faith in the idea of really rehabilitation. Sure. Like sure. if somebody was bad enough, do you know what I mean? That they could kill seven women by shooting them. And that you know what I mean? Then yeah. then it didn't matter if it was 40 years later or more that they should they should remain behind bars. And, you know, and look, you know, um, um, Leslie Van, Van, Van Houten, you know what I mean? Who was one of the Manson girls, you know, who was present, you know, mm-hmm. at the, the Bianca murder, you know, you know, was just recently released from prison. And, you know, and and similarly, you know, Berkowitz has been in jail for a very, very long time. And, you know, and so I just wanted to I just wanted to be so I, I, I drive up to Shawangug. And as I'm going into um, uh, the, the the prison, there are some corrections officers coming out and they recognize me from like some action movie that I did. And suddenly they're like, hey, you're that guy, right? You're the guy that, the, you know, and then um, and then I'm sort of like posing for photos. You know what I mean? And signing photographs for corrections officers, you know what I mean? And having a long conversation them about why I'm here and what I'm doing and you know and um and by the time I got in um it was a Saturday and visiting hours uh, were ending you had oh to be God. there before 2 p.m and, right. and just to keep it in the parking lot and it kept me there too long so I drove all the way back to New York City and then I drove all the way back <laughs> The next day, and I got, I, I, you know, you go through the whole process of locking up all your wallet and your right. money, and then they take a few quarters for the vending machines in the visitation room. And, you know, and I'm waiting there, and I'm waiting there, and I'm waiting there. Finally, one of the corrections officers comes out, and he says, listen, um, David is refusing the visit. You know, he's with people from the church, and he says he's refusing the visit. So I never got to meet um, Berkowitz, and that, that what that taught me was that you can't trust Serial killers. You know, <laughs> they break their word, That's you know, even said, right? Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, you know, I wrote, I wrote, a, I wrote a letter to, to Ed Kemper, you know, uh, oh, because wow. I thought maybe I could meet, meet with Kemper because he's in Vacaville too, the same facility sure, sure. that man. The same facility that had Beausoleil. I, I figured I could meet, you know, Manson I knew was going to be tricky. First right. of all, by the time we started doing the show, he was already in ill health. Right. And also because of his like international, you know, because he's internationally notorious, you know, there are all kinds of like, you know, people who, who want to meet with him and mm-hmm. want, you know what I mean? For, yeah. you know what I mean? So he, ta- he, has, he doesn't have that many visitors, you know, and, 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 uh, um, and Kemper had, um, unfortunately, from what I gathered uh, from the prison staff who confided to me certain things that maybe they weren't authorized to do, he 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 bear little resemblance at this stage to the character that's portrayed in Mindhunter. He sure. was that guy, you know, uh, and at the time in that period in the 70s, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, but in, in more recent years, he had kind of given up on life and, mm. you know, was kind of to a wheelchair and got no visitors at all, even from his family and had, you know, you know, difficult relationship with the prison staff. So that that was impossible. But, you know, you try to do whatever, whatever you can think of. And you're and you're and you're constantly, you know, because we were doing a new serial killer virtually, uh, you know, every week or every other week, you know, there was always somebody new, you know what I mean, that you have to because they're all different. And, you know, and their and their 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 signatures are different. Their M.O.s are different. The way they commit the crime, the reason they commit the crime. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. it's 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 it's, you know, so there's always there's always something new to learn in terms of me getting creeped out. You know, I guess the honest answer to that is the men that that happens to 
are actually the homicide detectives that have to investigate those cases right. and try to bring perpetrators to justice. Yeah. Because, you know, unlike me as an actor, yes, I can go to a prison and I can have a conversation with an inmate that committed murder. Do you know what I mean? And I can have, but I'm still, but I'm actually still an actor. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's not that that kind of research isn't useful. It okay. is useful. Sure. You do have an experience that approximates the experience that your character would have had, but it's not the exact same experience. Right. There's a boundary and, there. And, and, there is, right? That boundary doesn't exist in the same way for the men who actually have to try to catch these guys. Right. So you know, for them, you know, they're constantly thinking about the crimes. They're constantly looking at the crime scene photos, talking to the families of the victims, trying to put together in their minds, you know, step by step what the killer would have done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and often taking their home work home with them at night. Do you know what I mean? And it can affect their family life and it can affect affect them, you know, emotionally and psychologically. And you see guys, you know, becoming alcoholics uh -huh. and you see guys having nervous breakdowns like John Douglas. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, and they, they see themselves, I think, quite rightly, as, you know, performing um, a role that's very necessary in society. Do you know what I mean? There are these, you know, you know, like heinous killers at large. Right. Someone and has to like, intervene. Right. Right. So so those guys can often become very deeply affected by these investigations, you know, in a much more profound way than I think for an actor. That makes sense. Hey, hold what? What was the name of the the guy who did come and visit the set sometimes? Was it Bill? Uh... Yeah, McCreary. Yeah, yeah, and he wrote a book called The Unknown Darkness, right? Um, which chronicled, you know, his experiences. Um, that famous killer in. Uh, uh, up in uh, Rochester, New York. But he had some great cases, you know, working with John Douglas, working with Robert Ressler, working with with that whole team. And initially, he was brought on because there was some there were some complications surrounding John Douglas's deal, I think is what it was. And I don't know exactly what the specifics of it were, but it took some time for his deal to close. And so initially, you know, we had been asked not to not to not to have interaction with John, which was hard because, you know, John wrote the book. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. I really wanted to speak to John. And as I say, I couldn't speak to Robert Ressler because Robert Ressler was dead. dead. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as as soon as, you know, um, um, I was I was allowed to contact John, I did. And I got to say, you know, um, he was very gracious to me, always willing to get on the phone, you know, as was McCrary. You know what I mean? And, you know, and I would use them both as a resource, you know, because, you know, you, you, you often have technical questions uh -huh. about how you in an investigation do you know what i mean and 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 sort of you know and the, and the writers of course you know are doing similar research mm -hmm. you know and they and, and you know, we had good writers but that doesn't mean that you as an actor don't want to hear it from the horses sure, mouth. sure. Yeah. i remember him visiting a couple times and i remember talking to him and having that that sense that you were talking about of just i was asking him questions and specific things about interrogations and things and and as i was speaking to him I was just really conscious of him looking at me and and, and feeling really like I was being thoroughly analyzed assessed. and assessed. <laughs> yeah. And I and I'm, you know there's part of me that's going uh, but I'm but I'm I'm not a serial killer. I'm not uh, yeah right. I, I, am, I, am I a serial I'm killer? Not, I'm not hiding oh, no. anything. Am I? No, no I'm no. not. I'm doing uh, I'm Where cool. was I last night? But but yeah, he was it was so fascinating and I was 
try to like soak all of that up and and try to figure out what it is that that is happening that right, is giving that, me this that feeling. makes you it's feel like, that way so yeah, that you can kind of emulate of that but gaze or just the way he's you know sort of looks at you without doesn't seem to be looking at you, but is taking you in. Well, I will completely. say you did a great job in your performance of you know, every delivery and some of the scenes where you're talking with Anna Torv and in some of the when, when you're first meeting um, Holt's character and the first time you're talking with Jonathan that like you're very direct and you're very cordial. And it felt like you had an ulterior motive for everything that you're asking what you're doing. And I was like, he's doing a really good job because Michael's not like this in real life. Like well, He's just like a nice guy. But I'll, I'll tell you. A secret to all of that was a note that Fincher gave me early on out of the hearing of all of the rest of the cast, which was in each one of those three scenes when you're meeting the three of them, I want you to to copy them and ah, do back mirror. to them. Yeah, mirror mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So, so, you know, talk to Holt the way Holt is talking to you and, you know, look talk. at him in the way that he right. looks at you. And same thing with Jonathan, the same thing with Anna. And that's why he's he seems to be three very different people in those yes. three conversations good note um, yeah it's I, it's it's part of a of a like a old um uh management style sure right you know? yeah i mean keeping with that same vibe of what you're you're sharing with us michael do you have any favorite or memorable behind the scenes or on set moments that stick out to you oh god i mean it was all it was all a favorite moment it's was it's one of my favorite jobs I've ever had yeah. on screen, just, you know, being a part of that ensemble and being a, a cog in that, in that incredible machine. Um, the, you know, the, the stories that people tell about Fincher's multiple, multiple takes are not exaggerations. You called me and I was like, what was day one, you know, of filming like? And you were like, so we walked down the stairs 22 times <laughs> and that's to make sure that the stairs looked great uh, when we walked down them 22 times. And I was like, all right, that's awesome. That's it was, I mean, it, it was, it was that, but it's also, I started to feel like, and Holt, I wonder if we haven't really talked about this ever, but um, I felt like when you would have those scenes where you just would do take after take after take and, and Fincher was often just there, not, he wouldn't watch from video village. He would watch from mm-hmm. just like just offset. So he could step right on as soon as you finish the take right. and he would start talking and, and it would, it would be uh, sort of notes or thoughts at first. And then at a certain point, he almost was like, he was basically giving you your interior monologue mm. and talking you through what he wanted you to be sort of thinking. And it would even start to incorporate some of your dialogue. And I'm sure there were actors who were like, I don't really need to be given, you know, a line reading, <laughs> whoever yeah. you are. Yeah. Um, and I just felt like he was just sort of like talking and, and trying to put your brain on the same wavelength as his. Yeah. And then, then he would just step away and, and then you would go on and and the net result of that kind of repetition for me was sort of getting to a point where you stopped acting and you Mm. just because you didn't know you'd done it so many times by this point you couldn't judge what you were doing anymore and you couldn't edit yourself and you couldn't be trying to do anything right you just started actually doing things like a human being and that was what i felt like he was after in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. performances mm-hmm. and it's certainly what it looks like when you definitely watch it the end screen. result yeah. does look that way the my other favorite part of of being a part of all this was getting to work with 
Holt and, and oh, Jonathan, like my, my favorite aspects of the show were just getting to work with them. And Holt was so mm-hmm. great from the very beginning. Like when I first went there at, uh, at recognizing that this was going to be kind of a daunting thing mm-hmm. and that, you know, that doing a David Fincher show is not like doing a regular television show. And Holt took me out to brunch. I don't know if you remember, but that, that first weekend when we met and and sort of, you know, just gave me some pointers and some tips and sort of said, you know, you'll, you may encounter these things. Here's how to look at it without being, <laughs> you know, shriveling up in a corner in your <laughs> hotel room later. And uh, and I was always so grateful for that. And and it was just the best part of the show was getting to do that and, mm-hmm. and watching Jonathan Groff try not to giggle in scenes, which is pretty much what he did. <laughs> <laughs> the the more perverse the the stuff that was happening in the scene, the harder it would be for Jonathan not to just giggle while he's talking about someone's underpants being stuffed in their mouth. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can I can imagine knowing Jonathan a little bit in his deep sweetness and kind of kindness. It, it was a hoot seeing him kind of like mashed into that world. We're gonna get into the stories quick, but I Holt, I just wanted to sort of throw the same question to you is like what. What did you love most? Um, what's a memorable experience from this, you know, incredible piece of art about serial killers that you did? Well, you know, I mean, um, there were, you know, we were there for two years, yeah. you know, so there were, there were a lot of memorable moments. You know, as I say, you know, it's it's um, whenever you're working uh, with an A-list director and you've got a great cast, you know, uh, people, uh, super talented guys like Jonathan and Michael and uh, some of the really wonderful actors, um that our casting director, Lorraine Mayfield, found to play the serial killers, you know, mm. Cameron, Cameron Britton, oh you know, who was nominated for an Emmy Award, you know, for playing Ed Kemper. Kemper. Do you know what I mean? Really, really memorable performance in a very difficult part, you know. So, so uh, you know, part of it was just was just that. I remember, um, you know, uh, an actor named Oliver Cooper, uh, who played uh, who played Berkowitz, the son of Sam, yeah. came up to me, you know, in a restaurant in L.A. And he said, you know, uh, Holt, I just have to say, you know, what a pleasure it was working with you on uh, on Mindhunter. And I said to him, oh, what did you do on Mindhunter? <laughs> And said, uh, I was I was Berkowitz. I was like, you were because you know he did a um, he did a six hour uh, prosthetic makeup, right? Do, do, wow. you, you know, uh, as did the actor who played Charles Manson. Right. When the guy walks through the door, he looks exactly like Manson. It's incredible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was kind of like the really you know the really exciting part about the whole experience, just knowing that you know I mean Michael uh, gave what's probably the best example you know i have others but you know um which would be uh those long rehearsals that mm-hmm. we would do that and with the actors around the table unheard of yeah in the television business right and you know and this is i mean part of a larger issue which we could you know get into or or, or not but you know the difference between director driven television and writer driven television right and you know you know the problem you know with a lot of shows is that you know you know television series television 
is generally not really a director and an actor's medium. It's a writer and producer's medium. Right. And, um, and the writer is king because, you know, you, you know, the idea is he has to continue to generate stories every week. You know what I mean? We have to make 48 hours of television, you know, 48 minutes of television with 12 minutes for commercial. When you start with the entire season already written before you ever shoot one frame of film, which doesn't mean it isn't going to change in the rehearsal process. And certainly, you know, the original scripts did change great deal because of decisions that David made along the way. But those rehearsals are invaluable. And there's a reason, you know, as I'm fond of saying, you know, there's a reason that God created rehearsal. Such a tremendous advantage for the actors. Do you know what I mean? To be able, as as Michael said, you know, to familiarize yourself with it, to put it on its feet a little bit, to try that, to ask questions. Why am I saying this? Didn't I say this in the previous scene? Is it redundant? What what if I said X instead of Y? You know, could I, you know, and and to try to make it your own and to try to find, you know, the truth of the character of what this guy is really, really feeling, you know, and when you have, when you have a, a, a director like David who likes that process, who likes that exchange of ideas and who welcomes that and wants you to go off do your homework and then come and present for me how you would like to play the scene. And then I'll look at that and I'll tell you, do you know what I mean? If I'm happy with it or if I'm unhappy with it, or if there are things about it that I like and things about it that I don't like, and I'll make adjustments, but it's really, it's really the actor's responsibility. I think, you know, in the first analysis to, you know, to, to, to come with some ideas, mm. you know what I mean? About what, what, what you'd like to do. And then, and then he'll, and then he'll, he'll bring it to life. I remember, remember on one occasion, you know, and I, I said this uh, recently in an interview I did for the for the Times, you know, I, you know, about um, a scene with my my son, you know, and it was the last scene I ever filmed mm. with the young actor who played my son. And it was in an ice cream shop. And, um, you know, my wife and I are having problems and uh, the boy is having problems mm-hmm. and Bill is, you know, struggling to try to figure out, you know, what kind of father he can be to this young man. Right. And, you know, and David said, keep in mind now, you know, this is it. This is what it's going to be. This young man may never change, may never grow beyond where he is at the moment, you know, that that you're never going to have the normal experience, you know what I mean, of fatherhood and throwing the ball in the backyard with your son. It's a very interesting note to offer me at that moment in time, because, you know, it was kind of like, you know, the eradication of hope. Mm. You know, we sometimes cling to this notion, you know what I mean, that there's a more hopeful outcome possible. Do you know what I mean? No matter how unlikely, you know, it may be. But if you eliminate that from your thinking and you say to yourself, you know, um, this this may be just the way it's going to be, you know, um, you find yourself in a very different place emotionally. So, you know, he as a director sometimes, you know, like, you know, to cut through, you know, uh, and get to the really the essence of something, you know, what I mean, in uh, that, that's very unique. You know, he's just a real, really smart uh, guy. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why he's become one of the most successful directors. Of, you know, yeah, that's, he, that's, he might be on to something. Yeah. Well, now that we've just talked yeah. about one of the greatest, you know, uh, living storytellers, uh, let's yeah. very awkwardly transition into our stories, which now feel incredibly subpar and not up to snuff, but uh, it's going to be fine. Words, it's fine. I'm not having imposter syndrome at all. Um, so, Michael, uh, we're going to start with Edward's story. Talk to us about your just initial gut impressions. Pretend you're just an audience member who stumbled across a true crime podcast and we're like, I just listened to this 
fucking story. And now I need to take a shower. And now I need to take a shower in holy water and uh, yeah, slap myself with a rosary. So what was your uh, initial reaction to this terrible tale from the USSR? I Well, for, on the one hand, I couldn't believe that I'd never heard about this right? because like something of that scale and that scope, you would think would have been worldwide knowledge yes. and <laughs> movies would have been made about it by now right. and everything else. The Red um, Ripper. The fact that it's takes place in the Soviet Union kind of explains why, why it did you not. didn't. At least yeah. part of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, my other kind of principal reaction was just like, it was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It was so much, so many victims, so many multiple uh, offensives, offenses committed on each of those victims. And, mm -hmm. and the, the fact that the search was hampered by the Soviet state just not really taking it seriously or mm -hmm. not wanting it to be uh, public knowledge allowed it to continue for so long. So long. Yeah. It just was, I just felt overwhelmed by the amount of, of horrific detail yeah. It. yeah it, 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 it his story to me really hit is like this is human fuckery like layers yeah. upon layers upon just whether it's government where it's political whether it's psychosocial where they're like oh let's go after the queers and the vagrants and you're like right. or <laughs> or there's all of these other types of people yeah. who a, you could look into a reduction of fuckery might have caught him many years prior yeah, yeah for sure yeah that's that's <laughs> did you find yourself uh, sympathizing with Andre at all, Michael? I started to, by, by the end, you mm -hmm. know, when you, when you start to get into the, you know, his backstory and, and what happened to him as a child mm -hmm. and his, the way he was treated by his mother. And, um, I started to have some retroactive, uh, sympathy, but, <laughs> but I think the problem was <laughs> right. that there was so much, initial sure. stuff heaped on him yeah. that it was, it was horrific. Yeah. It was a little hard to kind of remember, mm -hmm. oh, actually was a human being, was a child right. himself right. at right. one time. Yeah. Uh, you know, fell fell victim to to a lot of terrible things. I do remember the moment that you talk about with his mother and and wife having to help him out of the noose that he was trying to hang yeah. himself yes. with. Yeah. That that stuck in my mind as a as a kind of pathetic humanizing moment yeah. regardless of whatever else he had been doing just being but, at that point like think of how the world could have been different had no one helped him out of that rope too yeah you know yeah. it's fascinating to think yeah. about let's jump to Holt Holt what was your initial feelings impressions you know overall just uh, were you familiar with the Red Ripper story before this I know I wasn't familiar with it. You know, um, I, you know, I did find it uh, deeply, you know, fascinating. You know, um, obviously the Soviet Union under under Joseph Stalin, you know, um, you know, with his, you know, uh, you know, collectivism and all of those, you know, disastrous policies that res resulted in millions of people of dead and widespread famine. And, yeah. you know, the way that Chikatilo, am I pronouncing his yeah. name Good job. correctly? Well done. Perfect. You know, you know. You know, grew up in in, in 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 you know in abject poverty, and said that he never even tasted bread until he was twelve years old, and he mm -hmm. was a sickly kid. 
the descended stomach that was bullied, etc. One of the things that I found really interesting, just because of having worked on Mindhunter, was the fact that it was the first time that the Russian police brought in a medical professional yes. uh, yeah. to profile. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, and 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 the guy made a study of it, and eventually came up with a pretty accurate profile. He nailed you know, it. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was which I thought was super interesting, and it didn't involve you know vagrants or homosexuals, <laughs> homosexual, you know, really like that. Sure. He said that the guy was you know likely well educated. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Married. And that would have been you know. Right. Right. And then, you know, and and eventually, you know, um, you know, they were they were able able to catch him. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it was significant to me that when he was arrested, he didn't resist. Mm-hmm. He didn't say a word. It was that he understood. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And them found, found him so. and he kind of knew what 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 his fate was going to be. Yeah. Did you, uh, you know, like Michael, feel any kind of when we were giving the backstory of like, OK, here's the antecedents to how this person became. Did you feel any empathy or sympathy for him? Or you just like, fuck this guy? I wouldn't say that I got to the place where, no, I could feel uh, empathy uh, uh, for Chikatilo. He says early on, right, that he came to understand that he got sexual pleasure from watching other people suffer. suffer. Yes, right? he did say that. And so, you know, in theory, then you get more sexual pleasure from watching them suffer even more. Right. Do, 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 you know what I mean? Yes. And uh, no, uh, it's 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 very difficult, you know, to feel empathy, you know, for a guy like that. I mean, yeah, I'm certain that he had a, a very difficult childhood, but many people in Stalinist Russia would have had very difficult childhoods mm-hmm. and didn't kill 53 people. Or I, I think he was convicted of 53 murders, right? Yes. And then nine of them you know, were overturned because of lack of evidence. Well, you know, that's still leave 42, you know, or 44, or, you know, to what it was prolific. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, um, you know, he was executed and it was I was never a big proponent of capital punishment because of course, you know, we have had instances in this country of people, you know, actually being put to death and then sure. later DNA emerges Whoops. that shows that we didn't have the right guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so yeah, so so you know um but I think on that occasion, maybe, you know, they have the right guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to shed a lot of tears for, for someone like that. Especially the, the stabbing the eyeballs so as not to... <laughs> To leave the yes, the the, the folklore the thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, just just like, in wow, case that's... this weird magic fa- Russian fairy superstition is true, I'm going to stab you in the yeah. eyeballs. As I, if he hasn't done enough. I mm-hmm. can't tell you what it was like to edit the sentence about liking the feel of uteruses and testes in his mouth. I was just like, I need to seriously <sighs> rethink what I'm doing with my life if this is yeah, you, what I'm I mean, editing. You... <laughs> I've made poor choices. For context for the listeners, uh, my original draft of this story was so graphic uh, that I cried. Kim, I cried. Kim, we, this I don't was mind. the first time in human fuckery history Two where years. Kimberly was like, full stop, no, absolutely yep. I, not. No, it, it, and so I was like, okay, you take it and and kind of take out some of the, the more graphic and visceral details. But uh, what on that specific subject, one of the things that he, he liked so much about tasting uterus and testicles <sighs> specifically was that he liked the feeling of elasticity in his mouth. It was very disgusting. K- but, <sighs> Kim's welling up again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, 20 years 
of journalism, 25 years of interviewing people from all walks of life about everything from sexual trauma Mm -hmm. to, you know, child abuse to, you know, uh, fuckery, you know, in in court. Like, I've heard some really horrible stories. This is the first one where I actually cried and said, we have to tap it out. uh, Yeah. Tap, tap. Like, um, I'm in over my head. I'm I'm drowning right now. Um, So we've got this Red Ripper story. It does seem like we're, especially with the success of Dahmer um, this last year or so, uh, and the success of things like American Horror Story and like you've said, Saw over the years, it does feel like we've been trending in a direction where like gory, horrible, psychopathic, sadistic behavior is like for some people entertainment. It doesn't do it for my nervous system's not wired that way personally. But uh, Michael, would you like to see a Red Ripper movie made? Well, I was I was just thinking maybe Mindhunter season three, Russia <laughs> ghost. <laughs> Mindhunterovsky, much cheaper mm. budget. Uh, yeah, you know, you can do it all in a bunker. <laughs> just sort of like yeah, do it like Succession, where you just like film in a series of bunkers and maybe like a cold forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it'd be that like some of the Nazi so propaganda films. Putin will actually be in the show oh. and he will catch the killer. <laughs> that's that's how we'll do this. That's how this that's how the government will fund it a hundred percent. Right though, I yeah. think it has been in the last in the last while, like I don't know, ten years or so. It seems like there are so many more. There's so much more interest in serial killer things yes. and true crime stuff. And I remember Holt took me to this event that uh, John Douglas was moderating. It was a panel with uh, Amanda Knox and mm. was it one of the Memphis Memphis Three guys? Is it Damien Eccles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, about uh, about wrongful convictions, mm-hmm. and and I was fascinated that there was it was at town hall and it was packed. Mm-hmm. And it, I was fascinated that there was this much of an audience for this event, and then I came to find out, oh, this event is just part of a whole true crime convention. Oh yeah, this crime weekend. cons a big thing. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. was I was amazed. We are an interesting species. The things that we <laughs> do for recreation. There's a lot to unpack there. Holt, would would you like to see a Red Ripper movie, or do you think it's maybe best for humanity that we not dig any deeper in this stuff? You know, probably uh, if I had to pick, I would pick the Benders. Um, if I'm not like spoiling things by changing no. the subject, no, we could change the no. subject. And 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 the reason I I, I would is because um, it's always fascinated me of serial like a family. Mm-hmm. Of serial killers, yes. Do you know what I mean? You know, the mother, the father, yes. the sister, and the brother. If he is the brother, right. do you know what I mean? All involved. You know what I mean mm-hmm. in this this crime. I remember the first time that I read um, uh, uh, "In Cold Blood" mm-hmm. by Truman. Right. You know, uh, I had really been and, you know, I had spent part of my childhood in Nebraska. My mom, my mom was from Nebraska. She Mm. was she was Miss Nebraska. Uh, And it takes place in part, you know, in in, in Nebraska. True story about these these two guys. And there are other examples of this, you know, um, in in cases that we studied, you know, uh, who together, do do you know what I mean, combined to commit crimes that probably neither one of them would have maybe had the courage to commit if they were alone, but somehow their personalities complement each other in mm-hmm. a way that yep. they become 
capable, you know what I mean, of in tandem yeah. of doing things they wouldn't, you know. So this was really interesting to me, you know, with the benders, you know, yeah. you know, because, because like, you know, the the the, the characters were, were all so different. You know, the father, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, you know, deeply uh, antisocial uh, father, the, you know, the mm-hmm. creepy brother, the charismatic daughter. Right, 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 right. Exactly. The charismatic daughter, do, do, do you know what I mean? You know, always like soliciting men and you know, and her, you know, uh, uh, interest in the occult and, yeah. you know, and speak the dead and all of that stuff. And this grimy little inn, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? They run, do you know what I mean? Where you can check out, but you can yeah. never leave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing just writes itself. The Hotel Kansas. <laughs> right. yeah. oh, boy. So there's something cinematic about that one. No, you're, you're definitely right. That's that's a good point. Well, really uh, quick before we transition on to mine, Edward, I wanted to ask you, uh, sure. Holtz, Holtz actually helped us get to this question. What made you pick the Red Ripper story? Uh, there were so many to choose from for this episode. More or less that it was a story with a tremendous amount of gravitas. I mean, obviously how prolific he was and the fact that he was able to carry on for over a decade. And most of us over here on this side of the world had never even heard of this, but it was very reminiscent of some of the big hunts for serial killers throughout the golden age that we've referenced at various points. Um, I wanted to expose people to a different kind of a different journey down this same road. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that you did. And I I did uh, thank you as far as the storytelling goes, that that little tag at the end about, hey, as a result of this manhunt, they did end up solving a tremendous number of crimes that did need to be solved and had been under policed and everything. I'm Um, wondering if they were just covering their ass by saying, we may have fucked this up. I choose to believe that lie because I need to be able to sleep (laughs) at night after doing this episode. I hope you're right, honestly. I, I do hope it's right, but... But uh, I, I thought your story choice was amazing. Well, Even though you. I did cry after hearing draft one, mm-hmm. I, it, that's not to undermine your, your no, storytelling or your horrible. research. It is a horrible story. It is a horrible I story. completely dissociated while writing it. <laughs> <laughs> For your own safety. There it is. Well, so, Michael, what were your first impressions or kind of feels about the uh, the, the Bender story? Well, I, I agree with Holt that it felt like a movie as, mm-hmm. you know, as we were listening to it. And a lot of it um, is because they're, you know, there's more specific detail about the the place and the the setting of it and and there is something really fascinating about this collective of yes. people working with this a shared to whatever mm-hmm. extent uh maleficent uh purpose you right know? right um and and the characters are so creepy and weird and like, it's like some, a dark carnival. Yeah, yes. like, totally. you know, like just a little a, house on the carnival. It's, it's like it's very terrible. strange. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing too that you can also wrap it up with like oh, Laura Ingalls' dad. Yeah, we're gonna get there. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it, it gave me big Eli Roth hostile vibes too. Yes. Like the hot young girl luring people right. back to with the this weird to the inn, you know? stained canvas curtain. They, you know, the books about it and the uh, so there's a wonderful book about it uh, that we're gonna tag in the um, the the show notes so that people can read more about this this story if they want to. But you know, there's. Um, people really were pulling the crime scene apart and taking pieces of it. So there's all of these uh, documents from 
newspapers across the time about like, I got a piece of that canvas, like that canvas curtain wow. that was dividing the room. And I got a piece of this wow. bed and I stole, you know, uh, Leroy Dick managed to get the, the murder weapons out. But pretty much everything else was taken by, mm-hmm. you know, d- disaster porn collectors of the time. And so there actually is like pretty incredible records. So I was yeah. able to put a lot more detail into it than you would if you're trying to go through like Soviet case files years after they've right. been declassified. Uh, well, I, I had a bit more access. Additionally, I, I had to kind of pull back on the visual story form right. because it involves so many kids. Like it so was many just kids. traumatizing. Yes, it like, was too, to, way to too put, traumatizing. To put the listener in the room was just a non-starter. Yeah, the, the, and my story's a little unfair in that it, no. it felt like I could tell <laughs> a bit more of it without, you know, doing emotional damage to the listeners because it, it's 200 years ago. So you sort of feel like there's some distance between you and it, you know, but there's I also already lost it. writing it. So I don't <laughs> care. I'm good. <laughs> what were you going to say, Michael? Well, it's also, it's, it's at a really interesting point in the country's history and, yes. and the expansion West. And, and I hadn't really thought about, you know, Kansas as this kind of barren, scary pioneer yeah. sort of area. And, and the fact that, as you're traveling, people are just like walking along or, you know, maybe taking a wagon or something. But mm-hmm. and the fact that you become a successful inn because you're no, no matter how shitty your place is, it's a place. Right. And it's, it's the indoors. last place for the next yeah. 50 miles that you're yeah. going to have to walk or whatever. So so all of that was kind of intriguing and, and kind of and and. The very beginning feels very contemporary, like yeah. you know this young girl going to a to a seance thing, you know, with this yes. cool older girl, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Holt, you've done a, a good job of sort of saying, "Hey, I like the the sort of cinematic as- aspect of this." But was there any other impression that the the benders or this particular story made on you? It's really fascinating to to ponder, like, how did this all begin? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know. You know who was their first victim? Um, how was that individual killed? Do you know what I mean? You know, which member of the family, you know, you know, precipitated, you know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. this, this, this undertaking and, and, and how were the others recruited into this enterprise? Do you know what I mean? Where so many, because they talk about, you know, so many, you know, uh, unaccompanied travelers disappearing, yeah. you know, uh, you know, what do they call it on the Osage County yeah, Road? Yeah, Osage that, Mission Trail. Yeah. You know, that's that's that that's what would be that would, you know, this is and this is, of course, you know, David's approach, uh, you know, in, in, with Mindhunter was that it was the psychology mm-hmm. of, the, right. of the killers. It was really it, it was really interesting. You know what I yeah. mean? You know, yeah. showing them committing their crimes. You, you, you know what I mean? Um, um, is is, you know, uh, potentially, you know, you know, too graphic and mm-hmm. too prurient. You know what I mean? For audiences to especially, you know, I mean, you know, Kemper talks about cutting off his mother's head and yes. then having sex. sex with you know it. what I mean? With yes. the, you know, her head, you know, big corpse. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> Burying the head in the backyard, you know, stuffing her voice box down the garbage disposal. Watch that. You know what I mean? <laughs> or it's enough to have him, you know, you know, say it. But, but yeah, but that, that, that that's what I think. If you could get to that point, you know, um, where and, and look, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, very talented writers in Hollywood, if they're ever allowed to go back to work, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, is to, is to figure out, you know, um, 
uh, what the internal family dynamics of the Bender family really are. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I also find it very interesting, you know, that they were smart enough to know when the jig was up mm-hmm. yep. and sneak mm-hmm. out of town at the 11th hour and evade prosecution. You know what I mean? So they weren't stupid. No, it's, you a, know it's what I mean? a great point. When, and it's actually a really salient point because, you know, so much of the way that they got away with the shit that they did, it was like, well, the sons, you know, he's a little feeble is the word that they always use or simple minded. And the parents are nuts and Kate's well educated. But, you know, they're crazy. They're just crazy. And so that's kind of how they got away with a lot of these things that were like, you know, antecedent events as far as like, hey, there was this robbery. Hey, there was this weird thing with this girl, Julia. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, like they were able to pass off. Oh, we're just some baddie Germans. We're some, you know, baddie, crazy people. But obviously somebody was savvy enough to go. Those people are here for a reason. Mm-hmm. We absolutely did not convict them. Pack your shit up. We're getting out of here. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, my big question in researching it that like I just couldn't get an answer to, but wish it could was like, were the parents actually unhinged antisocial or were they like quietly coming to the table after their acting was done and being like, how do we think we did on this? Right. Are you all right? You go dig this. You do that. Like who, who was the, I might want to dial back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mom, if you could just spit a little less on the guys when they come in next time, it's just a little much. I have to clean it. It was just the whole, uh, the, the reason I chose this story is that one, I, Edward, what is it? 80 or 90% of our serial killers are male. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 90%. So uh, I'm fascinated by the, you know, the people who are outliers in that statistic. And then the idea that there was just a group, like Holt said, you know, the idea that there was like individuals who may not have had the skills necessary to do this, but as a unit, I mean, they were crushing it. 11 bodies plus the one loaded into the well, like a bullet, like just upright. They never mm-hmm. identified that body, mm-hmm. by the way. They never found out who it was. So it was just. Yeah. Might have just stepped into a hole and just left them. That's all it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was baby Jessica. Yeah. Yo, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that that was it. So, but also that they're, you know, at first you think they're all related. And so in, in some ways you think, oh, well, I guess if the family starts to go down this path, you know, then, mm-hmm. you know, one for all and all for sure. one. Right. But then one of them may not actually be and, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know? And there was a question that I wasn't able to like, it, just for time, I didn't want to get too into it, but there were questions about whether Kate was even their daughter. Like mm-hmm. did a mm. did a group of disenfranchised, kind of nutty, uh, opportunistic people meet up north and decide, you know, if we go out to the frontier where we have a lot of space and it takes weeks for mail to get anywhere and mm-hmm. people are just kind of, pat- and you know, this whole period in the, the reconstruction of America, they were just getting, giving land away with somebody else's land but they were giving that land away and it's like was this just a perfect storm of crazy in a little crazy eli roth cabin or was this a very well calculated you know put together thing where people are like let's just go rob and murder some people and see what we can get away with so um uh, we're getting closer to the end of this but i have a a question for both of you that that's kind of a big question but it it, it attaches to you know the point of us doing this episode we don't do episodes like this just to be like who wants to hear some fucked up stories the the sort of purpose of human fuckery especially in season two has been to uh to try and make the point where we can that if you don't take care of the least of us, some of these horrible, nightmarish things that everybody's so set, uh, you know, upset about are natural byproducts of failing to care for people. Um, and so, Michael, do you first, do you uh, feel like some, obviously not all, there's, there's things that you can't always do, but do you feel like some of this extreme violence and the serial killers that uh, we're talking about in this episode uh, are bar- byproducts of 
child abuse, not taking care of people, not forming strong communities, that there are things that we could be doing uh, as a culture that might perhaps not produce these um, these big, terrible outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think Holt's analogy earlier about, you know, the cake and the elements mm-hmm. being put together mm-hmm. is is a perfect one. And you have a bunch of different people with a lot of those same ingredients, but then you add a certain malignant element to one of them. And it's it's not surprising that it's going, you don't know how it's going to affect the person. It could, for some people, it might actually turn them into a more altruistic person. They they're, The way they're put together, they may find that as a catalyst to their becoming a much better person. But much more often, I imagine, it it goes the other way. And I think I think these both of these stories, um, but especially Edwards, kind of show the the negative results of being abused as a child and sure. and mm-hmm. being bullied and, and maybe having your brother eaten. And maybe having maybe. your brother eaten. <laughs> um and I think I think there's you know plenty of evidence that that's the case and that we are failing miserably, especially in this country, at taking care of the least of us. Mm-hmm. Edward, I'm going to kick it to you before Holt, because mm-hmm. you did some research. You know, uh, Edward is our doctor, our, our doctor of psychology, uh, of clinical psychology in the room. So, you know, you come from this as a, from a very clinical sort of academic sure. place. But what's your feeling? Do you think if we take better care of people, uh, some of the antecedent events uh, might not end in horrific violence. Yeah, I think that uh, anyone who is predisposed to antisocial behavior, there has to be an environmental factor that expresses that predisposition. Mm -hmm. And so even though somebody can kind of come out of the belly having some motor oil in the mix, um, if they're nurtured, if they're cared for, if their life is cultivated in a way that demonstrates uh, meaning, that they matter, that they develop connections with people that, uh, you know, go, go beyond just acknowledging their existence, like some kids that just feel like they're put on a shelf when their parents are through with them, um, that those things don't necessarily have to take place. I don't think that anyone is damned per se. And even though for decades our belief has been you can't treat a psychopath, um, they're treatment resistant, sure, but it is not impossible to treat a psychopath either. There's still someone in there. Right. Well, and you told us off air, uh, repeat this for everybody, uh, Chikatilo was not a diagnosed psychopath. He was not diagnosed psychopath, but I mean— Psychopath I'd, behavior, yes, but what look, did you say about I, I, what was his diagnosis? I'm not his doctor, yeah. like, but we're all clear that you were not Chikatilo's <laughs> therapist. It's possible, but <laughs> don't don't write in, folks. I'm, I'm saying that it might have been limited, but he was only diagnosed as borderline and uh, sadistic. Okay, uh, and so we do know that you can treat borderline. Uh, you can't always treat psychopathic behavior and you can't always treat mm-hmm. um, sadistic behavior, especially if there's, mm-hmm. you know, entrenched thought loops and uh, obsessive compulsive behavior. But there are treatments for borderline. Holt, what about you? Especially after, you know, reading the books that you had to for Mindhunter and, and talking to some of the people you do. It sounds like you're somebody who really believes um, in uh, rehabilitation, but uh, it is also OK to say, you know, rehabilitation is possible in some cases and also in others. 
maybe it's best that they were executed. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, I think I think that's probably true. You know, and uh, I think it's p- possible in certain cases and not in others. I mean, you know, I told you uh, earlier in this conversation that I had uh, been uh, multiple times to Vacaville to the to the, the California State Medical uh, Facility in Vacaville um, to interview Bobby Beausoleil because mm-hmm. he was a close seat of Charles Manson right. because he knew all the girls because, you know, he murdered Gary Hinman. Do you know what I mean? He's been in jail for 50 years. And I thought that he could, and especially in, in that time when we were, when we were doing the Manson family, do you know what I mean? He just seemed like the, yeah. you know, the perfect, but I can tell you now having met with him that, you know, he's 73 years old, you know, and, um, uh, you could release Bobby Beausoleil, you know, he was 52 years ago that he that he that he killed Gary Hinman because of a drug deal that went bad. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that he has remorse for that. He's expressed that he's been in prison for half a century. Um, uh, he's no longer a threat to society. You could release that guy tomorrow. Um, you know, he's got medical problems. Uh, he's not going to commit another murder. Uh, he uh, just wants to live out the few years that he has left. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? With mm-hmm. measure of you know, he has a family, you know, so, you know, um, it's, it's hard to get people, you know, to acknowledge that, you know, the sister of Sharon Tate, a woman named Deborah Tate has made it her sort of life's work to try to assure that anybody with any association with Charles Manson or any association at all with the Tate LaBianca murders remains in prison, you know, in perpetuity and uh, shows up at the hearings and argues against, you know, uh, releasing the, you know, uh, you know, people and, you know, and, and, and Bobby was in prison when was was in jail was in custody when his sister was murdered mm. do you know what i mean so he had nothing to do with that crime and right. yet, you know you know uh uh she clearly holds holds him responsible in some way yeah so you know i i i think it i think it depends i you know and i think also you know um it's really interesting to to see the way in which as the culture has changed also the frequency of these crimes Mm. you know has changed you know if we go back to the golden era of if you want to call it that do you know what i mean when many of these crimes in the 60s 70s 80s do you know what i mean and into the 90s well there are many that's not that they don't exist anymore but there are far fewer of them now and what we've seen the rise of are mass murderers yes you know what i mean jihadis you know what i mean suicide mm-hmm. bombers you know what i mean mass and, and different right. murder mass shootings stuff that we stuff that we hadn't been accustomed to in that era do, do you know what i mean but yeah. has become sort of our era's version if you will of a you know a, a similar problem you know how do you how do you detect you know what i mean who might be capable you know of that kind of an attack you sure. know what i mean how do you prevent it it's not it's it's uh it's not easy it's not easy you know it's you know it's it's an endlessly fascinating subject mm-hmm. it really is Human psychology and the the psychological underpinnings of sexually motivated homicide you know uh there there they you know there's so much you know to understand it was it was easy for me uh you know when i you know to to see why you know some of these some of these guys devoted their entire lives do you know what i mean to this sure. subject mm-hmm. Some of them with a particular, you know, uh, a specialty. Do you know what I mean? Whether that was, you know, perpetrators of, of, of you know, ch- child sexual assault or, right. or, 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 do you know what I mean? Or, so, you know, so, you know, some of them. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I found the I found the whole subject, 
you know, um, you know, endlessly fascinating. And, you know, um, I still do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even there's even though there's no more Mindhunter uh, uh, episodes to come, you know, it hasn't kind of dampened uh, my interest in this subject at all. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, I hope that you don't have to take in too many more stories like the Chikatilo one, but I guess there's things to learn from from all of these. So um, we're we're gonna do the the part where you're gonna pick what you think the the winner is, and you're gonna tell us why no one's gonna get mad at you or or psycho murder you if if you uh, if you've not chosen theirs. Well, Edward might. He's got a lot. Of, he's got yeah. a lot of childhood yeah. antecedents we need to talk about. But yeah. uh, Michael, uh, which story are you choosing as the winner and why? Uh, this is this is really tough. Not not only because we're in a band together, and if I answer, I am wrong, not going to quit the band. We're going to the gig tomorrow. It's going to be fine. Um, Good. Um, I I feel like my sympathies are more with the Bender story, like just because it's a it's a, a such a detailed, cinematic, mm-hmm. interesting because of the family aspect, um, and I was able. I think I think the the thing that prevented me from getting more deeply into Edward's story was just the sheer volume of stuff. It was right. just, I, I just kind of shut down a little bit as I was listening, yes. I think. We kind of predicted that, actually. Yeah, I we mean, did. I was, I was like, I think people are going to Part of me wants to just vote for Edward's because I feel like... More bodies. Be, be, between be more bodies, more fun. Jesus. Um, but also because, because he, you know, took into account your feelings and your reaction to the story when you first heard it, you know, his initial draft of He's it. He's a responsible and, storyteller. And then, and kind of uh, hamstringed himself. Yeah, so in some ways I feel like Edward should be should be awarded uh, my vote because he was responsible and, and kind of hamstringed himself somewhat by by picking this I'll take the honorable mention Michael it's fine it's fine so so it's kind of a a a, um a qualified vote for the the benders oh okay so you're you're picking the benders there's an asterisk Miss Congeniality goes to Andre Chikatilo all right that's fascinating all right okay uh well thank you very much yes um we'll pass it over to Holt Now's now's the time. Uh, pick a winner and and justify your answer. Well, look, you know, I mean, as 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 interesting as as Chikatilo, uh, you know, is on a certain level, we're still talking about a guy, a lone wolf serial killer whose own personal sexual dysfunction leads him to to act out, you know, sexual fantasies, you, you know, savage of savagery and butchery, and you know what I mean, all of those mm-hmm. references to. The knife kind of like, you know, symbolizing mm-hmm. as he stabs and stabs and stabs yeah. some of the victims 90 times, stuff right. like that. I mean, uh, we certainly studied guys like that, you know, for the show. Mm-hmm. But I think the Benders is a more interesting story for the reason that Michael said. It's just it's just more complex because mm-hmm. it's 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 trying to get you know, multiple participants to all sign on, you know, uh, to this this kind of like exceptional brutality, Mm -hmm. you know, where is the one, you know, sane voice in the group that says, God, you know, isn't the, you know, aren't we doing something, you know what I mean? Really horrific here. And, um, like I said, you know, the, the, the evolution of how that came to be would be very, very interesting to uncover. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm hoping that some some person is hearing this and is like, oh, we could do the Bender story. Also, maybe we'll just buy the rights to it and do it ourselves. Um, <laughs> and, you know, one final thing that I'd like to share just to, you know, just because I think it's relevant to this conversation mm-hmm. is that one of the reasons that I think we're going to continue to see a decrease in in serial killing, you know what I mean, in terms of just, you know, uh, uh, as a percentage mm-hmm. of, of, of crimes that are committed in this country every year is because um you know, DNA evidence has evolved to such a degree now with mm-hmm. relationship DNA testing and with uh, 23andMe and Ancestry.com mm-hmm. yeah. and all, you yeah. know what I mean, that it's become a lot harder to get away with these crimes yes. than it mm-hmm. used to be in the old days. And the Golden State Killer, you know what I mean, and, 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 yeah. and you know, in his recent, you know, apprehension and incarceration, just one example of that. Mm-hmm. Right. But there are people now that can, you know, access databases, do, do you know what I mean, and determine okay you know the 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 person we're looking for you know is the second cousin of this guy you you, you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so so that's that's that that that's another interesting aspect of this just the way the law enforcement you know and the technologies at their disposal continue to evolve in a way that's going to have you know an impact on these kinds of crimes Mm -hmm. that's a really good point and uh i am happy that it is happening that way i just kind of hate that we're living in a bubble where we've actually created perfect environments for mass shootings (laughs) so it's like we got one thing right we're like oh no we created a brand new problem uh well somebody somebody else can fix that problem i'm i'm tired after this episode i need a very long nap next episode next episode kim's nap um guys thank you so much for participating in this this this, uh long ranging and uh, thank you for listening to these stories they're so fucked up you're very intrepid uh committed guests and we really really appreciate it and also anyone listening who somehow missed mindhunter uh go and rewatch the show um it's a, a beautiful beautifully acted, beautifully lit, beautifully shot, beautifully told, but it also does a really incredible job of touching on some of the things we tried to in this episode, which is, yes, these these people did horrible things, and yes, we're not uh, making excuses for those horrible things, but also people become the way they are uh, for reasons, and that's why taking care of each other and uh, being thoughtful and, and being kind to children uh, is actually incredibly important. So, well, it's, yeah. it's so easy when you just think of of people as monsters to just dismiss them and not sure. and not learn anything from it. And yes. That's definitely not what that show did. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, it's not glory porn for criminals. It's more about mm-hmm. here's here's the culture of how we get here and uh, the way a culture deals with a crisis that they've created. So, yeah. uh, gentlemen, we're going to release you from your prison. Uh, please enjoy <sighs> the rest of your summer. And uh, we loved having you on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Too, thanks, thanks for letting us okay. hang. <laughs> you got it. Take care. And that's our last show for this season. A massive thank you to all of the guest judges over the past 12 episodes. Your insights were invaluable. Your punchlines were were priceless. Especially this week, I can't help but thinking about our Charlatan Scam Artist episode Mm. now that Billy McFarlane is putting on a fire Festival 2 and it is almost nearly sold out. Yep, Art. If if you want to learn more about someone who had firsthand experience with Billy, go back to episode 2 this season, right? Was that it or 3? It was was the Charlatan Scam Artist episode. Yeah, we circled back. My God. 
it, it, the punch, all of it, it was priceless. It was and, a great season. And we are all slightly smarter and less fucked up people for the conversations you helped make possible. If you're new to this show, definitely go back and listen to them being brilliant, funny. You won't be sorry. We also heap enormous gratitude upon Sergio Gonzalez Pagan, intrepid composer and musician behind some of the underscoring you heard in the background across this season. If you'd like a season three of this show to come out, please consider subscribing to www.patreon.com slash human fuckery. Studio time, music, sound effects, research, all of it costs money. And we're not above begging like Oliver Twist. Here we are, hat in hand. Just fucking keep this show going, guys. It's a weird economy. Now, if you'd like to keep getting stories, nuggets of human fuckery, goofy photos, and the like, you can find us on Instagram at Human Fuckery Podcast. Is it fair to say that we've abandoned Twitter now, X? Yeah, no, fuck Elon. Yeah, just don't even bother with it, guys. Just find us on Instagram. Yeah. If you can't afford to become a paying subscriber, please do drop a five-star review for the show anywhere you're listening to this if you haven't already. Uh, It's wild, but those reviews genuinely help independent podcasts like this one continue to exist. And for the last time this season, if you hated the show, my name is Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Please do leave your one-star review on any of my books or YouTube videos. I deserve it. Until next season, stay safe, keep it kind, and please stay weird. <laughs>